What does it take? What does it take to change the essence of a man? How much? How much money is enough? How low? How low can your box office performance sink? <laughs> I'm Garri. Welcome to the Flick Lab. Henrik, my co-host, can you ride a horse? I actually can. Not very well. I must confess, but, but I, I, I can do the basics. No, you can't. You can't. Of course you can't, because you're not a Native American. Well, neither is our today's, today's star. Even, even though he had the time period when he did his darnest to pass himself as one. On Deadly Ground is his self-directed movie. And in this one, there is uh, this infamous line that I noticed. Siegel asks uh, his co-star actress, can, can she ride a horse? And she responds, of course, I'm a Native American. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, of course. Well, well, when it comes to racial stereotypes, that that's not the only one that shows up in in on daily ground. But yeah, for for those, I'm I'm certain that some of our listeners have already guessed who is our today's topic, or if if they did not guess, they read the thumbnail and and got the answer from there. But yeah, our our today's. Today's main star, the, the man of the hour, is none other than perhaps one of the biggest feminist icons in, in Hollywood. That the man who is the self-embodied example of the fact that, that nationality and identity are basically fictional constructs as Today, to, to, today, see when an Italian man becomes a Japanese man, becomes a native man, becomes a black man, and becomes something else at the very end of the very dark and long journey. But yeah, we are talking about Steven Seagal. Yeah, that's, that, there's a lot to unpack. I don't even know where to begin, but... Well, birth... The the birth of Steven Seagal is a good place to start, I guess, because when it comes to the many legacies and the many histories of of Seagal, the God help us if there is not not like infamous amount of of starting points. I would say that Steven Seagal's history from his younger years is not quite well known, but there are some <laughs> not, books... not even to himself. Apparently, what? is that so? Well, there is. When it comes to the the whole famous Aikido thing, there there is of course some some unanswered questions. There's a lot of unanswered answered questions, and then <laughs> later, unfortunately, answered questions to several <laughs> to his claims. <laughs> oh my god! Um, but. Uh, but where to begin? Steven Seagal was born in 1952 in 
the, the United States, I was actually at some point confused. Like, is this guy coming from the US or where? Because he wears, he, he, he has influences from so all over the world that you can't kind of pinpoint this guy anymore. And even his looks are kind of, I, I was wondering at one point, like, is does he have some Native American blood in him? Because he, he could pass for me as a Native American. Well, apparently a few years ago, Sigal did a DNA test. Mm -hmm. And according to that test, Sigal would carry some Native American blood. The exact quantum is, is really locked on tight secret. Nobody knows how much native blood goes in inside of Steven Seagal's veins. And, and th this is once again, since we are talking about Steven Seagal, something that kind of goes on unconfirmed until you see the test results yourself and can get a bias reading that confirms that yes, these text, the test results are real. Continuing from what we do know is that he did apparently spend uh, several years in Japan where he trained and actually was the, the first one, at least, uh, foreigner to have his own Aikido Dojo in Japan, where he did train some uh, famous people as well. I don't know in Japan, but uh, certainly in one of his dojos. Yeah, apparently Sigal got this through marriage. Uh, the dojo originally was, was his father-in-law's, and... Well, some accusations have been raised up by the by the then wife of Sigal, who has made the statement that the only reason why Sigal got married with her and stayed married with her for all those years was simply so that Sigal could get his hands on the dojo. One of the most remarkable achievements of his career is breaking the wrist of Sean Connery. <laughs> in 1982. <laughs> well, well, knowing that, that that does explain why Never Say Never Again was such of a limp-wristed boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did a, a lot of um, stunt coordinating from the early 80s, at least. And then uh, in the late 90s, he got the opportunity to, to play the lead in movies. His first one where he acted was Above the Law, straight into the big leagues, into the lead role. Followed by all these classics such as Hard to Kill, Marked for Death. Notice there's a certain pattern here. We have um, three syllables, Marked for Death, Hard to Kill, and Above the Law, almost. And yeah, this is something... Out for Justice. Kind of, yeah. This is something that, uh, was it Warner Brothers that was uh, pushing out these movies that they wanted to establish kind of, as a kind of a seagull thing, the kind of a winning formula of the titles. Yeah, it actually is, is a marketing and manufacturing trick that the Warner Bros. put off. Yeah, Out for Justice, uh, yes, was indeed one of these early films that is seen as, I think, as kind of the, the core seagull, the, the, the main, the, the best seagull representation that you can find out there. Well, I would say that they are basically quite average action films, only kind of lifted slightly by the certain characteristics of seagull that appeal to masses. Yeah, and 
And my take is that that was also the reading that the industry got all the years before Above the Law was released. The often unsung song of, of Seagal's career and how it all started is, is somewhat of a myth, but one version that goes that is being spread around belongs to one of the Hollywood heavyweight, heavyweight agents, Michael Ovitz, who, well, once again, according to the story, Ovitz originally met with Seagal as he was Seagal's Aikido pupil. And Ovitz was one of these, these Hollywood agents that really had clout, who really had some weight that they could throw around in the circles. So much so that the, the, the then sentiment was that Ovitz can turn anyone, absolutely anyone, into a star. And Ovitz chose Sikal as a kind of a challenge, just to see exactly can he get away with it. And based on this, if I remember correctly, it was supposed to take on Warner Bros. parking lot, where Ovitz then organized an Aikido show centered around Steven Seagal, which was supposed to show Steven Seagal's Aikido skills and his capabilities as a martial, martial arts action star to the heads of Warner Bros. And apparently that went through to an extent that Warner Bros. Brothers were actually, they, they did sign Seagal for a number of pretty cheaply made action films that all ended up making a, well, relatively very good bank at the box office. And that's kind of how, how the whole Seagal phenomena originally started. These four titles plus Under Siege maybe could be seen as the core, the best of Seagal. That's, that's at least widely so seen as. Environmentalism is something that is often featured in his film, especially in this one film that he has directed on Deadly Ground. And I forgot to mention that during Out for Justice, there apparently was, a, a, well, it was something that raised up years later, but that there were sexual harassment claims from, from three women who were apparently silenced uh, with money. $50,000 per each. And on Deadly Ground, there were also accusations. This, of course, goes a little bit out of the, the sphere of, of like a movie podcast, to, to be honest. But I don't want to get too much stuck on this. But there's been a lot of accusations now over the years towards Seagal that he would have been sexually harassing girls uh, on the sets or in so-called after-parties and uh, situations like this. Yes, the, uh, the, Steven Seagal and the opposite sex is such of a toxic mix that Seagal has become actually one of the most me-tooed male actors in Hollywood. Yeah, Gerald Schumann filed a case against Seagal and accused him of threatening and beating her during the filming of his film Deadly Ground. She wasn't acting in the film. And uh, uh, also in March 2018, Regina Simmons publicly claimed that in 1993, when she was 18, that Siegel would have even raped her 
for what should have been a wrap-up party for On Deadly Ground. But yeah, continuing on from this, uh, then came Under Siege 2. This is one where Cigar was in, in some level of control, to the extent that he seemed to be very much a pain in the ass at the set because he would change entire scenes during filming. Unfortunately, he is also notorious for being the target of ridicule of his co-stars and uh, stunt workers. In 1999, Siegel was awarded with the Peta Humanitarian Award. I, I wonder if that's still valid or they haven't seen the latest movies of Siegel. But... Well, it, it may be the same kind of situation as apparently is his, his lawman status. Yeah, the, the puppy killer. <laughs> um, but uh, Exit, Exit Wounds uh, in 2001 was one of the last theatrically released uh, Seagull movies featuring the rapper DMX. And that was a relative success. It did a pretty okay bank. But unfortunately, Seagull was unable to follow on that success. The following year in 2002, another rapper joined Half Past Dead, Yarul, or Jarul, however you pronounce this. And um, I heard that there were some um, problems with uh, between Jarul and Steven Seagal, because Steven Seagal is quite notorious also for being late to appear on the on the shooting sets. And around this time, he was also traveling with uh, Buddhist advisor. And if this karma around the set wasn't favorable on one day, he would not be filming on that day causing a complete chaos at the, at the filming. He's been doing direct-to-video films for the last 20 years or so, being also often the writer-producer of these films, but has done mostly supporting roles in, since 2010s, where he's not anymore like in the lead, but uh, some kind of a other uh, person, as it turns out in the last movie that we're going to talk about today. He has played also bad guy in a one rare occasion in Machete in 2010. And Steven Seagal thinks he's a cop, but it's only indeed a ceremonial title. And uh, this TV series, yeah, he did a TV series called Steven Seagal Lawman. And he took this ceremonial title a little bit too far and acted as a cop. And then he drove a army surplus tank through, <laughs> through a person's fence and killed a puppy in the process. Yeah, It was yeah. e either the tank that killed the puppy or it was gunshots, according to the victim or, or the family, family, but I don't know. Yeah, the, uh, the, the lawman time period would also be... Be when Steven Seagal netted himself also those human trafficking and sex slave keeping accusations oh boy and it doesn't end there boys there's <laughs> no. there's mafia and <clears throat> yeah anything about that mafia <laughs> want to go with that <laughs> well holy shit if that ain't tangled mess oh my <sighs> so uh apparently once again this is a lot of he said she said Things Steven Seagal has said quite a lot 
about about what went down and how. But the general gist, as much as at, at least I have been able to piece it together, would be that uh, back in the days, Steven Seagal was working with with a producer, Julius Nasso. And Nasso was some, someone who did have mafia connections. Was it the Gambino crime family? Yeah. Yeah. And Steven Seagal had made a, a deal that the Nasso would, would be presenting him and Nasso would have made something like a four-movie deal on, on Seagal's behalf. Um, that Steven does his action movie shit in action movies. Now, unfortunately for basically everyone, this was also the time when Steven Seagal had found Buddhism after some some guru had declared that Steven Seagal is is tulpa or, or some type, something like that. Yeah, was this, this this the moment when he also refused to kill people in the movies because he wasn't supposed to kill people anymore? Yeah, this is this is precisely mm-hmm. that moment. Um, and well, due, due to these, these, his whole newfound uh, found Buddhism and his, I refuse to do violent action movies thing that was going on. Well, that of course landed Seagal St- in, into into some heap of trouble. He did try to to balance balance his stardom and and his Buddhism in in some features, like for example in. In the uh, direct-to-video action film *The Patriot*, which is one one of those those Steven Seagal action movies where Steven Seagal pretty much does jack shit. Seagal's whole gambit was that the Warner Brothers would put him on some serious drama films based on his acting abilities, <laughs> but the, the whole plan kind of laid upon you know Seagal's acting abilities, so nothing came from that. So. Steven was stuck with action movies and refusing to kill. And this led into some pretty, pretty hilarious instances. Like, for example, when making The Glimmer Man, which is the Steven Seagal chases a serial killer film. And there is the moment when Steven has finally cornered the serial killer Christopher Maynard at the church, where Maynard is holding priest as a hostage on gunpoint. And the situation is supposed to heat up, and Steven shoots the serial killer. And of course, that's a violent act. Steven didn't want to do that. So the the director of of that film, John Gray, came to the actor of of the serial killer Maynard, actor actor named Stephen Topolvsky, and was to him like Stephen, we have a huge problem. Seagal is supposed to kill you on this scene, but he refuses to do that. Do so. So can you do anything? And uh, well, uh, apparently Topolsky went to Seagal and and told him like that his 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 character is is down like at the very bottom of the barrel. He's a serial killer. He, there's no redeeming qualities on him, and. He's going to be reincarnated after his death because life goes on and you we all re- have the, the rebirth after we die. So 
if if Sigal would kill him on on the scene, it would kind of be a, a service for his character because now his character, who is a serial killer, could be reborn as a better person. And and this this finally this finally made made Sigal okay the scene where he shoots shoots <laughs> Maynard to death. O- only only for it, you know, be like two weeks later when when. The di- director Gray once again comes to Topolsky and is like, "Steven, Steven, we we have a new, new problem with with Sigal. Can you please help us out? Because apparently Sigal had gone gone out of his way on on the sound takes on the ADR the, of, of the film to play the point that well he only wounded Maynard in in the church shooting and." didn't really kill him this despite the fact that the film itself shows how Maynard's chest like explodes from the gunshot wound so now Topolsky was asked to do some post post edit ADR and and come up with some kind of kind of line that they could you know just play when when Maynard is not on screen and and this this way through audio cues, kind of point out that Maynard is still alive. And well, well Topolsky did what was asked. He he muttered something like, ah, just fucking kill me. Just end me now. That type of lines. And well, luckily studio cut it, cut it out. But it was because of these type of antics that eventually landed Steven Seagal in problem with Nasso, who then went to to Campino crime family and asked for for their help to put Steven on on online and get him on with the program. And uh, this is kind of where the story started to differ because well Steven co- tells that he got summoned by by the Campino bosses into a meeting and he went to the meeting armed and feeling no fear and what have you. And Gambinos have the story that Steven was absolutely terrified during the meeting and he was kind of a force, forcibly brought into it. But apparently they got something like 500 to 700 dollar dollar payup from from Steven or Steven at least promised to pay, pay that mo- amount of money and they would also later on get the cut from uh, of the paychecks that Steven uh, that Sigal would receive from from doing the la- last of his action movies. Then of course there, there was well at least two reporters who started to chase the story of, of Sigar's mafia connections. Steven apparently used a Hollywood private investigator as a middleman for him to hire an ex-convict to threaten these two journalists. The first one who was, was Anita Bush, who had her car windshield broken and and through that broken windshield, she, she found a package that had a rose, a dead fish, and a note that just said, stop. These, these, apparently, the roses and dead fishes were because that the plan was to indicate that it was the Italian mob at, at, <laughs> at business. <laughs> Somebody had, had been watching, watching the Godfather perhaps one times too many. Another journalist 
who got intimidated was the vanity fair journalist Ned Zeman, who, uh, who stopped at the traffic lights only to have a car stop next to him, open its window, point out a gun at Zeman and say, bang, stop whatever you are doing and driving off. Oh my God. Yep. Yeah. Um, of course, the private investigator eventually would be caught, up, caught by the FBI. That that was a huge scandal. The the investigator was working like a whole bunch of high class Hollywood celebrities, and apparently this wasn't the only shady deal that he had done. There was also some some undocumented guns that were do- found on the premises, some unlicensed wiretaps that he had installed, uh, a whole lot of number. And of course, there was also a separate investigation investigation on the Gambino crime family, and eventually, this all culminated on on Seagal be, being ordered to testify in in front of the court about about his connections and dealings and his past with Gambino crime family. And this is one of the the kind of infamous moments for Steven Seagal because the legal defense on Campino's side actually brought up a number of of Steven Seagal's past stories that Seagal himself had had told versus the, the verified facts that they had managed to dig up to show showcase to everyone that Steven Seagal is a pathological liar. This is also the the court case where Steven Seagal once again under oath had to confess that during his meeting with, with the Gambinos he had been terrified and afraid of his afraid for his life and the director who was sending the Gambino crime family on to Steven Seagal was convicted for uh, one one year and one day and then he got out, and a couple of years later, he borrowed another court case uh, against Steven Seagal. And this was settled outside of court. Yeah, this was something like a multi million case. 60 million. Against Seagal. Yeah, 60 million case against Seagal based on the fact that Seagal had broke, broke the deal that he had made with Nassau. Yeah. Be careful out there, all, all the people trying to get into Hollywood. There might be some interesting personalities. And for the information of our listeners, another little interesting case, uh, Out for Justice and Gene LaBelle, I believe a starting coordinator. Yeah, he was uh, with Steven Seagal at the set, according to the coordinator. And Steven Seagal was going on something about that. I have this certain technique that I can get myself out of any kind of a luck that you impose on me. And then the coordinator was like, okay, well, let's see, Seagal. And then unfortunately, Seagal couldn't get out of this lock, passed out, and apparently his bowels gave way. But uh, that, that, that's, the, that's the story, of course. If you listen to Steven Seagal's rebuttal to the story, he says that that nothing like this ever happened and uh, that the stunt coordinator is a, he is a pathological liar. And um, he just said that all the encounters that he had with Jean LaBelle were 
nothing but pleasant, but that they didn't have anything much of a encounter there anyway, just just pleasant encounters whenever they were discussing anything. But that this that would this would have been completely fabricated. I'm just bringing Steven Seagal's side here because I I know that the the other side is also. I wouldn't say that it's a very pleasant way to bring this up or to present the information. So I I get this very malevolent vibe from the other side. Uh, yeah, when it comes to label, when it comes to stuntmen's all, uh, stuntmen all together, there is once again quite a lot of everything going on behind. There's a lot of cock punching. Mm going on. Uh, Steven Seagal apparently, reportedly has been quite abusive towards his stunt doubles. Uh, one of the favorite kick, uh, uh, tricks that Steve, uh, Seagal rumoredly has, has loved to play out is that he kicks his stuntmen on the balls to see if they are wearing a cop. Some of these stunts are of such caliber that stuntmen have had to be hospitalized. And yeah. It's not like the, 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 there's a lot of reports such as that. When, when there have been some uh, stunt scenes involving Steven Seagal, that he would be taking it seriously and actually punching these actors because, you know, it's, it makes the scene more realistic. But that's not kind of what you're supposed to do on a film set. No, it's, it's called acting. Yeah. But then again, Steven Seagal is, is ferociously against acting as he himself views it as such that you are not supposed to act you're supposed to be <laughs> but yeah the, the level joke hold it, it is kind of like there, there is a lot of bad blood between stuntmen like Lebel and and Seagal and when, when it comes to that that incident that you mentioned yeah yeah it's once again like such of many things with with cigar that also is is he said she said kind of yeah that type of situation cigar maintains that the label was there only to give him back massage yeah and and the label himself makes the case that apparently cigars, I can't break out of any lock, I can't be choked, move was that he tried to punch a lebel on the balls. But uh, of course we know of these antics that he would be doing these antics at the set that would need hospitalization for stuntmen or that he would arrive to the set very late, which is very disrespectful. Or these, these weird things that he would be late for 40, 45 minutes, apparently, according to, again, one anecdote. And then that he, he the first things that he would basically say is that, well, I just read the best script of my life. Okay. <laughs> who, who wrote it? Well, me. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah, on, on top of that, apparently Steven Seagal also refuses to, to memorize his lines. Yeah, or or rehearse. Or rehearse. That that but but then again, that's also one of one of these these kings of, of the high class Hollywood actors. Like Marlon Brando also also had the same shtick as also yeah. has had the the post post wife beating Johnny Depp. And Marlon Brando was a pain in the ass to work with as well, so mm. 
but, but something that we can say for certain is that Seagal is no Brando. No, he's Seagal. Well, something else regarding his nationalities. He's not only the national of the, or the, the citizen of the United States. He nowadays holds the passport of Serbia since January 2016 and uh, of Russia, Russian Federation since November 2016. Yeah, apparently Sigal has a serious thing for kissing Russian oligarchs. Another side who is really well known for their respect towards human rights. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually had not noticed that his political sense has gone so bad. So I haven't, I haven't been keeping a close eye on him for years. So, but yeah, I'm not surprised. So he has had some trips to Serbia, and Serbia was willing to give him the nationality, and then. According to at least one spokesman from Russia, Steven Seagal was ha, had been asking for the Russian passport for for some time and being kind of insistent in, insistent upon it, got his wish and has met Vladimir Putin, whom he considers his brother. <laughs> from uh, another mother. Yeah. Okay, but uh, today's movies. Okay, should we start with our first one? Uh, perhaps, yeah. What is today's lineup of movies? Because we most definitely, since you mentioned that the five essential, the five best Seagal films of, of his entire career, that's not the lineup we have. No. Yeah, so I took the liberty to, to look at his career more as a whole, not only his so-called classics, so you get a better idea of what is what has been going on. Uh, we start with Above the Law from 1988, then we would look at Under Siege, which is often considered his best film from 1992. Then we would jump to On Deadly Ground 1994, which he directed himself. Uh, then some insights of Fire Down Below from 1997. Then Attack Force 2006, which is kind of from the middle of his uh, direct-to-video jungle. And then Beyond the Law, 2019, which is his latest film. It sounds like pretty comprehensive cut-up of, of Seagal. Well, I was thinking about this uh, during, during, during my background research, and there are so many ways that you could go about this episode. I mean, we could completely upend this episode and just do completely different movies. We could start with, I don't know, Out for a Kill, then we could take... Uh, well, I guess Under Siege has to be there. Then on Deadly Ground, and then you could take... Um, Ex Exit Wounds would have been nice, because it's kind of the, the last, let's say, highlight of his theatrical run. Then you could have taken this uh, vampire shit movie, whichever it was, that you were suggesting for this episode. Some, something dark or darkness. And then, of course, there is the machete, where he plays a baddie. But, you know, above the law. So his first film, directed by Andrew Davis, perhaps best known for Under Siege, though, and uh, The Fugitive from 1993, working with Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. And he also directed this uh, Chuck Norris film, Code of Silence, 1985. Uh, the cinematography here is by Robert Stedman, also was part of the crew of Never Say Never Again, the 
infamous Bond film where <laughs> Steven Seagal did some damage to Sean Connery. Uh, screenwriters are Stephen Pressfield, his uh, fiction novel writer. And then we have Andrew Davies and Ronald Shusett. He wrote the original story for Alien, Alien vs. Predator. Uh, music by David Michael Frank. Very established, over 80 credits in movie and TV. Okay. So yeah. Apparently, above the law, even though he doesn't really hold the credit for, for, such, for such, but the, the rumor exists that this was kind of co-written by Seagal himself. Well, for sure, if you look at the last lines of the films, film. Yeah. And the, and, and the Seagal's contribution most likely was mainly centered around, around the whole CIA angle that, that the film has. And that's kind of interesting note to take here at the very beginning, since, well, CIA, cigar style, uh, certain, certain word views are something that kind of keep on creeping up and popping up throughout the entire run of today's episode. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, prone to acting characters that someday worked or have are working currently for CIA or NSA or some intelligence agency or uh, EPA or is ex-military or but here today for above the law this is a guy who became interested in Japanese martial arts kind of like Steven Seagal himself and um, in a party apparently he met the CIA guy who made him work for the CIA but during one of the missions, he questioned the work ethics of this, let's call him the man in black type of CIA character who was about to give some damage to this Viet Cong guy in Vietnam War. Uh, Siegel caused a scene there and then he quit CIA. Got married. There's uh, ca casual sexism loads in this film. Babe this, babe that, and woman. All, all of this, and uh, uh, you do your job and I'll do mine. Bank on it, pal. I mean, my favorite quote from these films. Uh, that's the best uh, comeback line that I've heard from you do your job and I'll do mine. Yeah, it's also something to note that that only abides as long as your job is not, not being a reporter. Because above the law from Seagal is, is the one that where Sikal reportedly, now there was a leaked audio clip from, from Sikal when he was marketing the film, where Sikal states that female reporters are all bunch of fucking whores and cocksuckers. <laughs> Seriously? Yep. You know, Steven Sikal was just a fun guy who was able to kick ass properly. And drop some beautiful one-liners every now and then. The, well, mo not, the, not... the more I hear about the guy, the more disgusting it sounds. <laughs> well, well, not even kick ass properly. That's kind of the weird part of, of the whole action man, Steven Seagal. As pointed out, Steven's background is in Aikido. Aikido, but uh, he also has uh, some training in some other martial arts. Yeah, but, but mainly Aikido. That, that's kind of what, what Steven Seagal originally became famous for. Yeah. His, his Aikido skills. And 
he was kind of championed as the first Aikido's <laughs> using Aikido background having action star in Hollywood. And the thing with with Aikido is that it, it's it's the one martial arts mm. where the point is that that the practitioner of Aikido protects himself in a fight from the from the enemies, but also protects the enemies from harm. So it's extremely pacifistic form of martial arts or self-defense. Something that is based upon the concept that you as the Aikido master, you kind of ho- you, you are holding yourself back. You are pro- prohibiting yourself from ha- ha- harming others. And the whole point is that you kind of just wear, wear the act- attacker down. You tire him down so that he, he, sees, he seizes his attack. And as this happens, you as an Aikido practitioner, you end the cycle of violence. Because if would you attack, would you hurt him? You would just use kind of superior for, form of violence to harm another being, and that's precisely what's a, what's not Aikido's point. Not to mention that martial arts in general, the whole idea is self-defense and not bringing the first strike. And here we have a guy who has his primary uh, defense as Aikido, and he is using it to put people down left and right as the first strike. Yeah, his signature move is to break another person's neck. <laughs> As you do in Aikido. As you do in Aikido. <laughs> I was thinking of bringing my Aikido friend here, but um, I don't know. He, he couldn't tolerate watching six Steven Seagal films or five. <laughs> yeah, what, what other lines have we here as gems? <clears throat> I don't think you can drop a soul, badass. You're right, but I'll get an A for effort. Then kills an unarmed man, point blank. <laughs> and runs away from the scene. Because realizes like, mm, yeah, I think I that, that didn't go actually quite as it should have. But then again, uh, as, a, as a whole, well, kind of, kind of two things to, to point out. First of all, above the law, as already brought up, it's it's one of the better cigars. Yeah. This, this is kind of, once again, what is the best movie? It depends on who who's answering, but this is this is one of the top tier Steven Seagal features. And it's also, curiously enough, it, it is kind of the birthing place of many of the problems that you see with Seagal. Throughout his career and throughout his off-screen personality, that there's the heavy-handed symbolism that that Seagal kind of loves to do. The main bad guy from from the CIA end, CIA end is is a dude called Kurt Saigon, like like you know Kurtz from Apocalypse Now, the Vietnam War fi- mm. film. You know, take the first name and the first letter of the last name, mm-hmm. and and Saigon, almost like Saigon. Yeah. The film starts in in Vietnam, where where Seagal's eyes open and see he sees that the CIA is is corrupt and crooked, and even even the whole cut them cut them the governmental officials or governmental institutions like Central Intelligence Agency 
and the central intelligence agency being a corrupt entity, yeah, which is something also they are this kind of anti-governmental attitude. Is, is something. It's something that repeats in his films over and over again. It, it repeats. It also, funny enough, repeats also off screen. <laughs> like, like I said, like I said, uh, above the law, it's a birthplace of many, many kind of, kind of key features or pinpointing features of Seagal and his movies. It is, and uh, one key point is also his running, which seems to decrease in his films. <laughs> uh, but as we go on, that, but, that, uh, it's very prevalent in Above the that, Law, or as it's called, Nico in Europe also. Yeah, yeah, Stephen, the popular hand, Seagal. Oh my God, how inefficient running can this possibly be? Like, flapping his hands like a... Uh, I mean, Pierce Brosnan may be like an overachieving in the running efficiency, but this looks just... It, that's, the, that's the opposite <laughs> end. I, I, I guess that it gives Seagal more speed. Like he's he's building up his speed. <laughs> he has the propeller working for him. Or or then it's just a jab at you know Sean Connery, whose whose he broke like three years before. <laughs> well, that's pretty much above the law for me. <laughs> yeah. So the film ends with one of those uh, Steven Seagal esque. Uh, let me educate you on some uh, societal matters. Yeah, the, the infamous Seagal monologue. Yeah, which goes, which... quote, Gentlemen, whenever you have a group of individuals who are beyond any investigation, who can manipulate the press, judges, members of our Congress, you're always going to have within our government those who are above the law. Yeah, and this notion of something being above the law is, is once again, it's something that repeats both in Seagal's films and in Seagal himself. Yeah, there is always something above, beyond, on, or under in these yep. films. <laughs> yep. And the media is is always being portrayed as kind of a limp dicked entity. That, like, the, the relationship that Seagal's films have with the media... It, it's kind of a weird one. Uh, in in one way, the movies they they rise the media up as media, and this is something that comes more prominent in the later films. But media is someone who questions the the corrupt authority, and media is also some something that cigars characters use to break out their message. But at the same time, media is constantly being blamed for. Uh, being inefficient, being corrupted itself, being something that the ones in power, quotation marks, are using to, to brainwash and blindside and manipulate people, like everyday people. So it's it's kind of, Seagal, in, in one way, he, he makes the case that, that media is good. And on, on the other hand, he makes makes the case that that media is is really bad, and it's a, it's just a tool or a tool for oppression, and that female reporters are all whores and cocksuckers. <laughs> yeah, and, and already in his first film we see this 
early warning signs that this is a guy who might jump on the wrong bandwagon and start to believe in these conspiracy theories or, or alternate theories. Where he has now, well, you know, I would say that I, I would connect this very deeply with the fact that he approves of uh, the annexation of uh, uh, Crimea and has a Russian passport, lives in Russia, and uh, also this uh, on deadly ground monologue at the end where he spouts all this uh, this uh, conspiracy nonsense about uh, motors being working with water and whatnot. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we will come back to wrap up above the law. But uh, honestly, I don't have much to say about it except that it's one of those dusty-looking cheapo eighties um, action films. Uh, re relatively violent, but things are about to get even more violent. Yeah, it 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 is one of the eighties action films in in quite a lot many senses. Like well, once again, the main character here is is someone who who works on supervising and keeping up the authority. Steven Seagal's character, Nika Toscani here, is, is a cop. But he's not just any cop. He's a cop who plays by his own rules. As, as Seagal does illegal wiretap, goes against his supervisors, yeah. uh, uses unnecessary violence, uses unnecessary threats, um. and... Also, also, in in a really weird note, and this is something that we also have to get back on later. But is shielding illegal immigrants in in U.S. Yeah, well, that was interesting. That both Seagal and the other cop were okaying that, just like that. Yeah, but they are the good guys, and uh, they, they, they are the, the good guys. They are they are killing innocent people, or, or not so innocent people, but just you know, as I mentioned, that uh, Steven Seagal just shoots point blank this one guy because he doesn't like him, and then runs off the scene. And at the end of the day, he is this this hero who is defending the law. Yup. There's also. Once again, to keeping up with the 80s action movie vibe, also keeping up with Seagal, there is this kind of actually really badly plotted out conspiracy going on, which is the main plot of the film. Um, like, yeah, and uh, you know what? It's not only those above the law. It's also Steven Seagal who is way above the law here. Yeah, but if Steven Seagal is above the law, that's okay because it's, okay. it's, it's Steven Seagal. But the whole film is kind of a circus around the concept of stolen C4. Mm. And that's the big thing. The original case that Seagal starts to investigate is when he interrupts an, what he thinks is a drug trade, but turns out is a trade of an is a trade of military grade explosives C4. Yeah, and you never actually figure out exactly what's the deal with the C four. That the film kind of points it out that the CIA is giving C four to the mafia, but why? Uh, CIA's plan in the film is to to use C 4s charge to kill the 
the senator who is planning on starting an investigation on CIA. But at the same time, CIA, the, the ones who do the bomb attendance at, at the senator, those are CIA's own guys. It's the CIA's kill team that also operates operates on Sika's territory. So once again, why give C4 to drug de dealers? And same way, it's left uh, kind of unexplained what exactly is C CIA's part in in the drug dealings in in inside of America. Because yeah. in one way, the film highlights it like it's just one guy. It's Kurt Sagan who has gone rogue and is smuggling uh, drugs from Vietnam and using the, the American-based drug dealers to, to sell them on the streets and taking the profit for that way. But then again, at the closer to the end of the film, when more and more CIA starts to show up and more and more cigars ex-CIA pals starts to show up, it, the film starts to kind of paint it in the light that the entire CIA is somehow connected to the drug dealings, which also is is a conspiracy theory that has been going on quite quite some time. It's it's quite prominent conspiracy theory. Mm. It's also a theory which apparently perhaps even holds some water, mm. at least in some capacity. But once again, the, the film makes it really unclear. Which case is it? Is it Kurt Sagan being a one rogue renegade, or is it the CIA entire agency that is mixed up in the drug dealings inside USA? Yeah, and when it comes to the C4, if you wanted to kill the priest, maybe you could have wanted to use a little bit tidier methods than an explosion in a church and the wider repercussions that are coming from that. Is it now like a, some religious murder or what is this case? What are the scoops going to say? Mm. But these are kind of a, a hell of a lot of unanswered questions that you are left with at the very end of Above the Law. Yeah, that is true. But when it comes to complicated plots or plots leaving some things unanswered, just wait for attack force. <laughs> okay, Under Siege. Under Siege, often considered perhaps Sigala's best. This is at least his high, highest grossing film, the, the one that really broke the bank and kind of, like up until this point, Sigal had been in good light with Warner Brothers, Brothers as an action star who, who acts in yet still relatively minor budget made films that make a, pro a huge profit when you compare it to the original budget. But Under Siege is, is kind of like the, the bank exploder, the money maker for Warner Brothers. This is kind of the moment in Seagal's career when Seagal has enough box office behind him to grant him some power inside the, the studio a studio filmmaking machine. This is essentially Die Hard at Sea. It is, and when it was originally released, it, it, that was also the point that uh, many critics ra raised. It was it was often remarked as a Die Hard on sea, on a Sea or Die Hard on a Boat. The film is also directed by Andrew Davis, as in Above the Law. 
Cinematography this time by Frank Tidy, I believe it's pronounced Tidy, and he did hundreds of advertisements and uh, worked with Ridley Scott and Tony Scott before they became famous. Screenwriter is J.F. Lawton, writer of, uh, well, also such gems as Dead or Alive, Under Siege 2. Which is which is the famous film where there is exists uh, the photographic evidence of Steven Seagal groping then 16-year-old Catherine Hegel's breasts as, as Seagal is, is trying to feel out those possible breast cancer lumps. As one does. As one does. And uh, also a writer of Pizza Man, the comedy, and Cannibal Woman in the Avocado Jungle of Death. I'm not kidding. That's the title. It's it's way better film than than the title lets you expect. I've understood so. <laughs> yep. Music by Gary Chang. Well, he also did music for Sniper. Under Siege, it's quite brutal and unhinged action, a la Die Hard. Well, essentially, it's a it's a story about pissed off Axel Rose who wants to ruin a birthday party, played by Tommy Lee Jones, and Siegel has to save the day. Yeah, yeah. For Seagull and Saving the Day, Under Siege, as mentioned, it's, it is the highest crossing Seagull film. It's also the film that, that basically came after, or, or Seagull comes from to this film, from the, the kind of notorious 1989, when he tried to, to impress, impress a, fi, a, fi, uh, a female actress by showing her his gun. And also from those out for justice sexual assault allegations, where there was a group of, where that's what there was a group allegations from different different female assistants from the film crew. Four women as assistants eventually quit during out for justice. Three of them pressed charges against Seagal for sexual harassment, and those harassment and those suits were eventually settled out of court. There was also this starts to be the point when people start to take notice that apparently Seagal has the habit of of sexually harassing the possible like auditing auditing uh, female actresses. Yeah. On on the casting couch situation. When when we now reach under siege, Seagal has already netted under his belt several accusations of sexual harassment. Depending on how you quote uh, count these, we are somewhere perhaps perhaps six six to nine cases. Yeah, this was uh, also the last critical and commercial success of Seagal, at least on this scale. Seagal might be at his best when he is not in charge of the picture, as is the case still here. Also, when he is not the centerpiece of the picture. Oh yes, because this is, uh, as somebody pointed out, this is very much, this, this works because it's not only centered on Seagal, that it's also giving the limelight for Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, it, it gives a hell of a lot of limelight to Tommy Lee Jones. Seagal, make no mistake, Seagal is the one whose name and face is on the cover, and Seagal is the hero of the film. But technically, te technically wise, the film is very much 
build around Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones is the one that that kind of gets most of the of the trying out different types of things moments in this film. Tommy Lee Jones is the one who gets gets the ch most chances to do some acting. Tommy Lee Jones essentially very much also plot wise is the driving piece of of the movie. Most of the plot is being explained uh, through the discourse that Tommy Lee Jones has with the military higher-ups and his old CIA a commander. And not so much by anything that Steven Seagal's character manages to kind of, kind of dig up or even understand of the situation in course of the film. Tommy Lee Jones is kind of the entertainer of the movie and uh, where I would say Steven Seagal is not necessarily uh, completely hopelessly terrible as an actor. His problem is that he can pull off maybe just about uh, two facial expressions. It's just how Steven Seagal is. So you can't, he's not really made for cinema, <laughs> really. Uh, no, he isn't. And well, this is not a problem in Under Siege. But this is a problem with Seagal in general. This is something that you actually notice in the very beginning of, of Above the Law, the very first Seagal film, which is the Steven Seagal kind of a winning combo that he loves to pull out in, in most of his action films. It usually goes block, block, throw, block, block, throw, block, mm. block, finisher. <laughs> Like if you watch more more than one Steven Seagal action film, if if you watch a number of them, you start to pick up that use the typical Steven Seagal fight scene is the way. It, first of all, it's one on one fight, Steven Seagal and the bad guy, and bad guy pulls out a knife, or or a, it's it's a fist fight, or it's it's something like it's it's a martial arts situation, and the the usual. A lineup goes that the bad guy attacks. Steven blocks, blocks, does a throw. Bad guy gets up, attacks ag again. Block, block, throw. Bad guy gets up again, attacks, and block finisher. Uh, the finisher some sometimes changes. Uh, there is, of course, there is some diversity there. Sometimes it's just block, block, one thro throw, and followed by finisher, or the finisher may change sometimes. Seagal snaps, snaps the guy's neck, sometimes he throws the guy against the wall, uh, sometimes he just punches the dude. There, there is some variation, but the, the more you look at Steven Seagal action films, the more you start to notice that it's it's block, block, throw, block, block, throw, block, block, finisher. <laughs> yeah, now that you mention it. Yeah, but it's not... A problem in under sheets. That's something that bears to remember. And huge part why that is not the case is that there's actually surprisingly little martial arts in under siege. Yeah, there's a mixture of of action here, which is probably for the benefit of the, of the film. And, it most definitely is. And the fact that I think Steven Seagal, for whatever reason, is well directed here in a way that he is able to pull off these one-liners he has his smile and his certain charm still going on here when you get to later in his career it's just kind of steel-faced and uh, you you don't get any emotion out of this guy yeah uh, the movie starts with and is kind of prevalent and heavy on this 80s style of music to begin a 90s film 
so these gated reverb drums and loads of synths gated reverb drums you know if you have ever listened to any of 80s tracks they usually have this you know this this very specific 80s sound that you get here as well but i will say that there's a lot of pointless scenes abundancy here for example weird scenes like keep that playboy magazine uh, of course there will be loads later but there are some irritating parts about this film that makes this film feel pretty cheap to me at points. Of course, this is also a personal preference that I'm not too interested in the locale of, of doing the entire film on a ship. I don't think it's very exciting for the action, but people like to see this. And I think uh, as far as people's commentings go, seems that 90% of the people actually watch this film because of the tits and then they shut it off. I can kind of understand that. <laughs> Apparently this this woman actor who is extremely annoying in this film, by the way, can't bring the name to my head, but uh, plays a minor role in E.T. Yeah, it's a pretty solid film. You have a interesting uh, unhinged baddie, all the communication with the, with the US military. And kind of playing and having fun with that whole situation and th this is exactly what the under siege 2 does as well there's this unhinged maniac on a train who is once again pissed off about something that happened to him somebody tried to kill him or something and and now he has this supposed to be this pretty crazy video calls with the u.s military and says that he will kill everybody with uh with military weapons if his if his demands are not met yeah one of the last lines of the film before we finish is the who made you flip like this and the bad guy goes i got tired of coming up with last minute desperate solutions to impossible problems created by other fucking people and uh, i hope that's not your sentiments for me forcing you to do this episode no, 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 it's my sentiment towards you for all the other episodes. <laughs> Which one ones are those? <laughs> well, I, I guess I, I guess the next one. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about that soon. But, yeah, um, Under Siege, uh, to kind of keep up with, with the point that Steven Seagal's movies, at least in our lineup, that they kind of share certain similarities extremely deeply. We are once again dealing with a corrupt and inefficient CIA and through CIA, the government. This is something that we kind of return back to later on in the episode when we talk about Steven Seagal and, and kind of the influences that he has kept him with himself outside of the screen. This is also the movie that points out and or paints out the military as as the more efficient and the less corrupt branch of the government. It, it's you you kind of have once again this 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 split between the governmental branches. You have the intelligence which is the CIA which are very much the bad guys, both indirectly and directly through, uh, and directly through Tommy Lee Jones's character. And then you have 
the kind of morally good, the branch that that kind of holds against the test of of character, and that's the military. Yeah, there is this re- reference to corruption in the military, with quotes like "We'll just blame it on the cook." Absolutely, when they are thinking that everything is everything might be going wrong by the end. Yeah, but but that once again, that plan is made by the main bad guy CIA handlers. Yeah, yeah. Once again, quite a violent film. You you know what's coming when Tommy Lee Jones starts the mayhem. He just shoots the leading officer and uh, shoots him directly to the skull. That that kind of kickstarts the events here. Very diehard style. A kind of yeah. Um, Under Siege, essentially, it co- belongs to the subcategory of action films, which is Die Hard, but on X. These were very prominent during the, the 80s and 90s. That you, you had a whole bunch of these. You, you had Die Hard, but in White House. Die Hard, but in an airplane. Die Hard, but in a boat. And when it comes to Die Hard, but in X, yeah. well, well, not not genre, but films. I I do think that Under Siege is one of the better, if not even even the best. Okay, I I think it starts pretty slow. You kind of know what's coming, and you keep on watching. But it takes what is it, like twenty five thirty minutes before we get into the the action mode. And once we get to the action mode. Uh, Shortly after it, it gets into this pretty tiresome action where it's just Steven Seagal is trying to get rid of the bad guys. I I wasn't so bothered by the action beats of the film, even though they, well, this being a diehard, but in acts, they borrow very heavily those from the diehard. Like you, you have the... Die Hard has the, the, the rooftop explosion of Nagatomi Plaza. In here you have on-deck explosion of the of the helicopter in both films. The hero grabs something, uh, a new hose or something, and just, you know, jumps over the, over the edge. To, to save himself, you have the shooting down of an, of an aircraft. In here it... It was one of the fighter jets in Die Hard. It's the the FBI controlled helicopter. Yeah. So of course, when it comes to the action action beats, those are kind of heavily borrowed from Die Hard. Did it really bother me? And I was kind of on board with with those. Uh, kind of what what. What what was mo- more of a problem to me? was once again Seagal himself who's I I get that for for action stars of the 90s that the whole stone faced thing was was something that was expected of them but at at the same time I I kind of get the the feeling at times that Seagal is kind of just lazily going through the action that the first offender on on this front, in my opinion, would be the inside the boat gun battle that they have, like the, the moment after Sigal has has helped bunch of his his comrades to escape, 
and they come up, uh, they come face to face with this group of bad guys, and they are all shooting you MP5s and uses in, inside the ship. And that that's the moment where Sigal is kind of just sitting on his ass and and holding the phone and just you know yeah. kind of just shooting machine gun with his right hand. And I was almost about to mention that scene because I think it's one of those most unengaging moments. It, it is. It it most definitely is the most unengaging moment of the movie. It's also kind of showcases another weak point of the film, which is the the whole. Why exactly are these other people here in this film? Because uh, one way I understand it, of course, it's a boat and there is supposed to be an entire military group. Like it's it's manned vi- uh, vessel as, as the bad guys sees it. So of course there is going, going to be, be all, the all hands on deck and now, now they are all taken prisoners. It makes logic that the film kind of ha- has to at least address the fact that other people are being being on the, on the ship and that they have been taken hostage. This is also something that Die Hard does with the office workers of Nakatomi Plaza. But unlike Die Hard, where, well, John McLean, yeah, sets them free, but they never actually do anything. They just quickly disappear from the film. For some odd reason, under sheets, and I guess this is because we are dealing with with military officials, so that the film kind of have to pay lip service to U.S. Army and showcase that it's not just Seagal that that acts, but the entire military can take part in fighting against homegrown terrorism. Mm. But I, I I think it's a mistake that. Seagal lets his his friends out of out of that one room during during the second half of of the film, since now now the movie is kind of locked in the situation where they they have more than one fighting man on the good guy's side, but they can't really use them because this still has to be Seagal's show. Yeah, the big question is indeed why are they not keeping the camera? moving for example during the phone call why not just keep Seagal running around the corners but uh yeah it's just uh, sitting there on their asses somehow yeah apparently able to do something but on deadly ground well yeah why not on deadly ground 1994 this infamously is a Seagal film in in more ways than one. Uh, this is the one, the only, this is the directional debut and exit yeah. of Steven Seagal. At this point, as mentioned, this follows Under Siege 1, which was a huge moneymaker for Warner Brothers. So now, as we mentioned earlier, uh, this is the moment when Seagal has some clout and some mass in, in the studio circles, and he decides to cash it in. Uh, apparently, the, the story goes that Seagal, Warner Brothers wanted to do Under Siege 2. And Seagal was laying down the rules that he, he, he wouldn't do the film. He, he wouldn't do Under Siege 2 
unless Warner Brothers first let him direct his own movie. Okay. And Warner Brothers kind of just to get on Under Siege 2 out of the gates and to be able to monetize that that the, Under Siege's fame and name, they then decided that they are going to play, play ball with, with Seagal and they are going to give him still pretty okay budget. This wasn't cheap film to make. No, judging from the explosions. Yeah, and the game plan here was that, well, Seagal is such of a known name in the action hero circles at this moment that, you know, the movie is going to sell itself. And who knows, maybe even, you know, the fact that Steven Seagal himself is directing the movie that may also bring in, you know, extra cash. So why not? Let's give Steven Seagal a budget. Let, let's give him the ability to direct. And yeah, as, as you mentioned earlier, On Deadly Ground is kind of infamous also for the fact that this is, once again, <sighs> On or the growing list of sexual harassment allegations mm. made against Seagal. Uh, on 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 that the grounds list, we get the highlights of of offering to a uh, uh, to, to a female actress to get rid of her ex husband for five hundred dollars, and there was some you know extra extras harassment that happened. And then there is also the already mentioned rape yeah. of a Native American extra. Accusation. Accusation. A, a lot of these are as they have not, as, as they, there has not been a court proceedings on, on a lot of these cases. The story goes that Seagal offered the extra uh, a drive to an, to an after-shoot party, like the wrap-up party for the mm. movie. And way too late, the extra find out that Seagal ha had actually driven her to his home and the only party would be happening in Seagal's pants. Yeah. On other departments, cinematography by Rick Waite uh, did Red Dawn, the 1984 version. Uh, screenwriters are Ed Horowitz, who wrote Exit Wounds, and Robino Russin, who is the director of When I Sing. He doesn't have a lot of credits on his resume, but When I Sing is this quite recent 2018 uh, romantic comedy based on uh, real events. Music by Basil Polidoris. He's uh, kind of a heavyweight. He scored Red Dawn, 1984. Conan the Barbarian, Robocop, The Hunt for Red October, Free Willy, Les Miserables, and so on. Okay, so St Steven Seagal here is playing a person who seems to grow a conscience against an oil tycoon and then destroys the company. And that's okay, because he did it for the environment. Yeah, Seagal does a whole bunch of stuff for the environment in On Boring Ground. This uh, kind of, if, if you would have to summarize the films in, in one sentence, this would be the film where Seagal fucks a gilf and is then born again as a spirit bear. 
Yeah, that part. It goes into this mystical world. It's it's raising all of the possible cliches of the Native Americans that there's a lot of it, it, magic involved yeah, it, and that and we believe in these things and therefore you're that and we see you as this and yeah, this is kind of a retracing that the whole thing that we we already touched upon this this notion in in Pocahontas episode, mm. but the, the whole concept of of Native people being being people who are magically in tune with nature, painting the colors of the wind, as Pocahontas puts it. And on, on Deadly Ground, oh my God, if this film doesn't waste like five years of, of running time to, to make this point to you. Yeah, this is so awkward when you know that Steven Seagal seems to be... Uh, Steven Seagal is interested in many things Native American and this is supposed to be some kind of a positive representation of the Native Americans but oh boy it goes awfully wrong. Yeah and, and something that makes that even even kind of a more sad is, is the fact that the, this is the time period as as already mentioned there, there's a whole concept of, of identity being made up concept and Seagal being the example this is the moment when Seagal's identity was that of a Native American man or he at least thought himself to be one. And that's also something that is very prominently in your face throughout the film. That there's a whole hell of a lot of, of this Native American that, Native American this, Native Americans aid, oil workers zero type of stuff. Yeah, this basically that he is kind of the defending force of minorities or certain groups. Here he is, he is kind of the defender of the Native Americans. And I think it's a theme that repeats in many of his films. In Fire Down Below, for example, he is the defender of a small town, this poor small town that he is out to make right and make it get rid of this marijuana and uh, toxic waste mafia. All of these bar fights, that's, what does it take to change the essence of a man? And, God damn, I hated that gimmick in, in this film. That was... Like, in, in here, Seagal's gimmick is the fact that he he asks the same question kind of twice. Like, like he asks a half a question at first, and then he follows up with the whole question. Like, what does it take? What does it take to change the essence of a man? How much? How much money is enough? How low... <laughs> How low can your box office performance sink? <laughs> this is definitely a moment that I very much remember from Steven Seagal's films, this, this bar scene. What does it take to change the essence of a man? You first have this full-blown ruckus in, in, inside the bar. He's destroying the entire bar and then have this, has this real little game of chicken in the, with, the, with the worst offender of this group who is... Uh, mistreating this Native American and Steven Seagal comes to save the day and what does it take to change the essence of a man? Suddenly the film's mood and the music and everything changes and and he changes his approach, this bad guy. He says, I need I need time, I need time to change. And Seagal follows, I need to. <laughs> but since, since you brought up the bar fight scene, I, I think that bar fight scene 
when talking about on that ground, it's the it's kind of one of the one of the key scenes if you want to point out many of the film's failings just using one example because there, there's a lot that goes there's a lot that goes wrong in on deadly ground and a lot of it just comes together kind of beautifully in in the bar fight scene you you have the whole folks folks spirituality that the wise sage shit that Seagal tries to pull out here. You you have the whole Native American scope empowering thing with Seagal very clearly in part fight scene identifying himself as a Native American and, and having having these Native Americans aid oil workers zero lines. You have the oppression of, of Native Americans as as there is the obviously evil bully who who takes his bullying to the second degree uh, you have the the whole blindness of cigar to his own actions as at the end of uh, as during the hand slap scene cigar himself turns into a even more violent bully and now bullying eventually leads into a spiritual enlightenment or some shit like that. And then Sigov does the whole 180 and actually is, well, is now himself being condescending against the Native American man. As the scene ends with Native American man pointing out that Sigov is going to go into a long journey and it's, <laughs> it's good for all humanity. And Sigov just, just remarks, yeah, sure, yeah. Yeah, what was you, that? You, I, I... Yeah, you crazy savage. <laughs> the delivery was such that I got definitely this uh, condescending tone, but it, 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 it is it is condescending. It's a conde condescending ending to, to a scene who, whose main point was not to be a condescending against Native Americans. But goddammit, it doesn't make any sense because then there is this <laughs> casual killing of a bear as part of the rituals that makes him kind of kind <laughs> of the bear figure that he's supposed yeah. to be to challenge the oil company. <laughs> He's casually has this kind of a clearly a quite a long training session with the old man, the wise man from this uh, Inuit community or which whichever tribe they are of Native Americans. Yeah, I, I guess they are supposed to be Inuits. Yeah. In, in in here, it's it's really it's hard to tell because the film itself doesn't know where it's actually taking place. And I gotta say that Michael Caine's reference, uh, although he is the bad guy, but he constantly referring to them as the goddamn Eskimos, got a little bit uncomfortable too. Yeah. But yeah, so he casually kills the, kills the bear, has this whole training session, has some kind of a holy bath, and then he's ready to go on his mission, finally, and has recuperated from his wounds. Mm-hmm. Now, now, just a couple of scenes later, he is in a shack with this uh, Native American girl who asks Seagal's character, haven't you learned anything from my father? And he responds, do you really think that this hocus-pocus spirit stuff is going to help us now? <laughs> but really, after he went through all that hocus-pocus prepping... Yeah, yeah, and uh, after Seagal after himself being like, go hocus-pocus, like... All throughout the film, as as Seagal, like, like before his his spiritual path, 
Seagal also has his own hocus pocus made up made up nonsense lingo moment when he's like, I'm not a bear, I'm a mouse. Mm. Hiding from the hawks in the house of Raven. Yeah. Like, oh my god, who wrote this? Right, and and why Raven? I don't know of the symbolism of the animals and everything, but the, the and then actually the Raven part is a central piece of the story. Our the film ends with the Raven theme. But then again, that that all kind of, kind of points uh, ties down with with something that I I felt was really surprising with with on the ground because I I got the feeling that this is a movie that is really unsure of itself or Sigal is really unsure of his, of himself which kind of goes extremely hard against his his tough guy not afraid of anything ego or attitude or image he tries to portray constantly because on that ground wastes wastes no effort in order to to kind of paint paint cigar side of of the argument it, it the cigar himself is, is painted here as as the ultra macho ultra cool guy that the bad guys are so so villainous that it's it's downright comedical but the, the, the biggest biggest and weirdest problem here is is the, the post edit ADR mm. in in which the, the the background noises they they start to play lip service to Seagal almost like Seagal is so unsure of himself now that he's a he's a director that that he even has to has to make up dialogue just to get some confidence because this, this is something that also drives me nuts in in many of the scenes. You you have these off-screen yells. Forest is here. That fire is almost as good as down. Or in the bar fight scene where, where there's quite constantly these oh shit, kick their ass, Forest. Go, Forest, go. Uh, or or in that in the Jennings press release scenes where there, there are these off off-screen reporters yelling stuff like that's a crock of shit and nobody believes you. Stop lying to us. Yeah. And, and the film does this like like all the fucking time. And I kind of can't understand exactly how Seagal, that the man who built his, his entire career by being the tough guy in Hollywood, how all of a sudden he's, he's so afraid and he's so unsure of himself. Mm. Or is it this, is it just the case that he feels that the audience is so stupid that everything has to be kind of a, be handheld to them? Like you you need the that's a crock of shit yells during the Jennings press conference because the dumbasses in the audience can't piece it together that Jennings is a bad guy and he's lying to the press. Hmm. Hmm. There is a lot of this uh, self promotion as well to kind of lift the cigar as, up as the star which mo- most clearly starts in on deadly ground with quotes like just who the hell is this guy just who the fuck is he and note there's a hell of a lot of cursing in this film who is he you want to know who he is try this delve down into the deepest bowels of your soul uh, try to imagine the ultimate fucking nightmare and that won't come close to this son of a bitch when he gets pissed end quote so there is this uh, promotional line material, something that happens on, also in Under Siege 2 and many others. This moment of 
promotion for Steven Seagal's ability to kick ass. Yeah, and on that record, actually, on that ground goes once again the extra mile. Yes, it does. Because, yeah, at the very end of the, of the film, you have Arlie Hermes' er- character, who is the who is Stone, the, the leader of the mercenaries that that Jennings hires to get rid of Seagal. And Hermes has has like a whole load of these scenes where he pays lip service to towards Seagal. It, it starts when they, well, once again, use the cliche that Seagal is a secret badass. Now, now they found out, find out that Seagal doesn't have a background except, you know, starting from a certain day, year, which means, which they quickly piece together that that means that Seagal is, quote-unquote, the company. Uh, what the company is this time, it's, it's left undisclosed, but, you know, can be CIA, can be NSA, can be whatever. But Seagal is from the company before he turned it, moved to a private sector. sector. And following from, from this point, Ermi starts to have like this, you could drop this guy in the middle of an ice storm. And in two days, he would come back with, with fistful of pesetos and, and a hooker or something like that. And, and there's like a whole bunch of this stuff in On the Trick Ground. I, in my opinion, way more than there was in Above the Law or in Under Siege. Yeah, this is essentially the movie where Steven Seagal is starting to be more in control of his career. Mostly this is unfortunate, it seems, because of these kind of um, thematical failures and uh, or, or the tacked on speech at the end that originally, according to some sources, ran for 30 to 40 minutes. Jesus on a cross. Yeah, that that's also something like the, the Seagal monologue at the end, which closes the film. It's, it's infamous as it is, as it runs way too long. But the often not disclosed fact is that the, the producers at Warner Brothers, they we had to get on their knees and beg Seagal to trim it down because apparently originally it was going like infinitely longer. Yeah, now it's like eight, ten minutes, still extremely long. Some, something like that. Way too long and once again way too ham-fisted as Seagal kind of does once again the thing where he Paints the uh, paints the entire picture. Picture what he wants to say extremely clear to the audience, kind of a spoon feeding the message to you. This is also something that happens with the film symbolism. Yeah, and it's bringing a lot. It's just shortly mentioning a lot of things that you could expand on, but he obviously doesn't. He just mentions that yeah, there could be electric or magnetic engines, and they can practically run forever and. You don't know about them because they, if they were coming to you, they'd put the oil companies out of business and you get the gist. And this goes on and on and on. And since we already mentioned the whole Seagal going off the deep end and, and down with the crazy path and this this showing up in his films, I, I guess On That Crowd, it's not the last example of this or it's it's not the the last example of steven seagal's paranoid 
rabbit hole that he eventually falls down. But it perhaps is the best example. We, we get more of this uh, in in the lay, uh, in in Attack Force, and well, to an infinitely lesser degree, but perhaps also in Outside of Law, but in Beyond the Law. But On the Ground is per perhaps the most most clearest example. In in On the Ground, we already once again we we raise again the the whole point that media is lying to people mm. and. Everything is being controlled by the shadowy elite. Steven Seagal himself tur turns into uh, some type of eco-terrorist who has been stockpiling weapons and explosives for years before the film even starts. Because he has been preparing for a moment when he alone has to go against, in a war against an entire nation, essentially. So he is some kind of a violent renegade or rebel, or at, or at least prepping out to be one. And what's kind of noticeable here is that, well, Seagal has, has other business ventures outside of movies, as, as we often do. Seagal also is is two CD recording or artist. He had Steven Seagal's Lightning Boat, the energy drink. He's also uh, a one-time profilic author who, who wrote the book The Way of the Shadow Wolves. Or perhaps they didn't write so much. It's a, once again, it's a combination piece of, of, of two authors, Seagal being, the, being one of them and the other being Tom Morrissey. Yeah, it's because apparently martial artist has to be Uh, jack of all trades in art. Apparently so, but you actually, you you kind of know if if you follow Sigal's other ventures like his music, and 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 his books, you kind of get this this uh, closing circle when it comes to to C Steven Sigal, the crazy man. Because in 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 the you you never guess who who is the bad guy in in his book, The Way of the Shadow Wolves. Like take take a wild guess. Now we have had the CIA already, kind of twice. Now we have oil companies. What could it be? Steven Seagal's debut book. He has to have a bad guy. Yeah. Well, what could it be? The the gas companies. No, 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 no. Uh, I, I'm, I'm. It's and I'm not shitting you. It's the entire goddamn deep state, <laughs> and and the whole whole plot of the way of the shadow wolves is kind of a like Cliff Notes version of of the Q conspiracy, up until something like 2014. So, so, so Biden stealing Trump's votes doesn't quite make it into the deep state conspiracy plan in, in Seagal's book. But you have all of the rest. Like you, you have the president and FEMA, NSA, CIA, all conspiring together to, to use Mexican drug cartels to smuggle into USA 500 
plus some that they have smuggled already previously before the book starts. Jihadists, which they are going to arm with explosive devices so that they can have like massive terrorist incident inside of inside of USA. Uh. And and this is this is the conspira- conspiracy that that Seagal has to face against. And once again, uh, the 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 bad guys, the shadowy Kapal, which well, if you read behind the lines, is the true masterminds are, of course, the Jews. Not mentioned directly, but it's it's kind of hinted at. But the the tools of, of the real heads of, of the cabal, once again, is the fake news media and also the, the evidence of a pedophilic crimes against those in power. So... Yeah. That that's kind of at the end of a day where we close off with with cigar, and when you look at it, when you look at cigar's films from above the law, especially on Deadly Ground, you can kind of see how 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 this madness just builds inside of him. Yeah, it, it starts on above the law. CIA is bad, and. It's it's a shadowy elite that operates above the law. They are involved in drug trade. They are in co- doing cooperation with criminals. Or on deadly ground, the, the media is once again lying to you, and now it's bigger than ever. Now the oil companies also are in, in, in the mix, and you have to stockpile ammunitions and weapons in case you have to go against, you know, start a war against the country. And it's just like... In 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 his book, it it finally caps up with you know, you know, mm. pedophiles and and the president of the United States smuggling jihadists in into America and arming them with explosive devices. It looks like Steven Seagal went really off the deep end into the Pizzagate. I suppose U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission are also the list of possible targets for his future novels since in 2020 he he failed to disclose the payments he received for promoting an ICO an initial coin offering for cryptocurrency called bitcoin to gen <laughs> oh yeah yeah that mess up <laughs> and he was promised 250k in cash and then 750k in those useless tokens and this uh, violated the federal security laws that he was they're publicly supporting this coin <laughs> i don't know who the hell would take advice of steven seagal regarding cryptocurrency but yeah that's what they tried i guess putin i guess putin so seagal paid a fine of hundred and fifty seven thousand dollars plus some other expenses. Uh, Fire Down Below, 1997, our next film, film directed by uh, Felix Enriquez Alcala in in his theatrical debut. And he has made a long career in TV. Credits include some episodes of CSI, SEAL Team, Stargate, Terminator, Sarah Connor Chronicles, etc. Screenwriters are Jeb Stewart and Philip Morton, so pretty big names because Jeb Stewart co-wrote Die Hard and The Fugitive. And uh, music by Nick Glenny-Smith. He's uh, 
frequent collab with Hans Zimmer has had his hands on in some, some capacity in The Lion King and The Rock. Yeah, the, he did the score for The Lion King 2, Home Alone 3, and We Were Soldiers as examples. In Fire Down Below, we have the EPA agent Steven Seagal <laughs> and fighting against a sort of a corrupt and poor hillbilly town. So what we have here is uh, Steven Seagal arrives to the town and he's investigated a toxic waste dump into a river. Uh, throughout this film, it's a complete mystery still to me what this toxic waste dump is all about, where this toxic waste dump is coming from, but apparently their business is to deal with toxic waste dump and just dump it into the river because they're the bad guys. You know? And on top of that, they have some marijuana fields in this town, but apparently it's, it has nothing to do with the uh, uh, aforementioned toxic dump waste, because as far as I know, marijuana doesn't create toxic dumps or toxic waste. So Steven Seagal is more in control. He's the producer of the film. Uh, this uh, film is infamous for sped up fight scenes. He was late for his shoots once again. It has a kind of a really ham-fisted love story in it where Steven Seagal or, or his character has to constantly kind of prove himself to this lady that, yeah, he wants to be with this girl and it, it's not only for his mission in the town. And of course, being the good guy that he is, he takes her as, as his girlfriend at the end. There are some pretty hilarious moments in that where the lady notices the honey buckets in the car, car that she wasn't able to buy because she's out of money. So he bought those honey honey buckets for her. So somehow, even though Seagal's character still hasn't, hasn't even mentioned that uh, he, he bought those honeys for her, supposedly, she gets excited when she sees them on the back of the car, resulting in the fact that he she wants to further develop this relationship between them. And then there's this crazy brother of hers who has tried for her entire life to convince her of the fact that she would be somehow mentally disturbed and that she would have killed her father, their father. But as it turns out, it's the brother that killed, killed the father. He's the crazy person and is trying to manipulate the lady into believing something that didn't happen. And that has made the lady very socially awkward and, uh, and doesn't really connect with people, doesn't have friends. But Seagal is here to fix that. Fire down below, of course, once again, to keep a tap on on, on Seagal's dealings off-screen. This is the, the film that comes off after Seagal has refused to, to choose Jenny McCarthy to Under Siege 2 as, as the female lead, since Jenny McCarthy refused to expose her breasts to, to, to Seagal in a casting couch, couch situation. And Fire Down Below itself being kind of famous for the for the fact that Seagal once again allegedly kicked off a female actress after the said actress had refused to do a private line reading rehearsal at Seagal's flat. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> once again, the main main lady here being Mark Helgenberg. 
I, I I don't know exactly who who of the ladies of the fire down below finally agreed to to rehearse lines alone with cigar in in his apartment, but yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ, Stephen. Uh, there there are there might be some of the most heinous lines in this film out of the ones that we have looked into. Uh, for example when he goes to the, the, the town market or something and that there is this two beautiful ladies of course at the desk selling items and they say to Seagal kind of looking interested at Seagal they say to him that here's your chains and you can come back and see us and then Seagal responds I'm gonna do that two beautiful twins like you mm-hmm gets a man thinking <laughs> what, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking God, cigar. Pretty on your face. Oh, Can you get good. any more obvious? Ah. And slimy. Mm. Yeah, that happens. And also happens is the seagull whispery is getting completely out of control here. He he gets uh, seagulls getting really super whispery here, so I can't hear many of his lines anymore. I had to put the subtitles on, and it gets even more worse when he refuses to do do his own ADR in the two thousands. Yeah, and fire down below doesn't even even like like from the two uh, ecosystem centric action films, this one and on Deadly Ground, fire down below doesn't even. Get the, get the plus that On Deadly Ground had, which is the, the fact that the film correctly identified U, U, USA as a third world country. But <laughs> that, that's, at, at least On Deadly Ground, that was honesty that I could appreciate. Yeah, I feel that Fire Down Below is over long and uh, maybe the, the events are not so effective because there isn't some kind of main events that happen throughout the film, I feel that it's just step by step, Steven Seagal is destroying this toxic toxic waste dump boss and his empire. And so this is uh, essentially Steven Seagal and the town lady against uh, the toxic waste dump uh, big boss who lives outside of the hillbilly town somewhere in a fancy office in, a, in the middle of center somewhere. And then his son has to visit this toxic waste dump leader every now and then because they are unable to control Steven Seagal's character in the town. So finally, after a lot of persuasion, the big boy himself comes to the hillbilly town to meet Seagal. And it's not a meeting of amicable terms. So, of course, this crime mafia leader then sends more baddies on his way. But, you know, with same results. Oh yeah, this other remarkably incomprehensible moment of this lady who gets super excited about those honey buckets in the car. Later on in this film, she gets really excited about the the gun that is visibly on sight near the pedals of the car when Seagull himself sends the girl to grab something from the car for fixing the porch. And instead of being kind of intimidated by that, being scared by that, she's next like, 
well, I think you are worthy of a relationship. So essentially, the next she suggests that maybe they should have like a supper and see where it goes. But I guess in a hillbilly town, whoever holds the gun is the one to go on a date with. All in all, I think uh, it's one of the more entertaining films of the films that we have will be tackling tonight, for better or worse. Well, speaking of worse, would that then be Attack Force? Our our take on on the the two thousands of Seagal. This being from two thousand six, just just. Four years before Steven Seagal's Lawman and and all, all, all the shit that went down behind the scenes of the of, of his reality show. Yeah, so jumping into his direct-to-video career that started roughly in 2003, when uh, the film with Ja Rule, uh, Half Past Dead, tanked in the box office. This started this uh, about 10, 20 years now running in and doing these direct-to-video films. Uh, Attack Force is directed by Michael Keush, a TV and film director collaborated with Seagal on some of his other <clears throat> hits too, as like <laughs> Shadow Man 2006 and Flight of Fury 2007. Cinematography is by Sonia Rome, some German cinematographer. Uh, screenwriters Joe Halpin and Seagal himself. Halpin is a TV writer has lately been doing the TV show FBI, music by Barry Taylor. He composed all the Michael Kirsch Siegel movies. And other than that, he has three other soundtrack credits, but looks like he threw this keyboard out of the window after 2007. The tagline or, or, or the plot outline on IMDb baffles me because I have a kind of a different outline for this film, but I'm not surprised given the confusion level of this film. But... IMDb states, quote, when aliens arrive on Earth to harvest human DNA, a special agent is assigned to destroy them without letting the public know they exist, unquote. Yeah. Then again, on IMDb's defense, nobody, even the film, can quite actually understand what it is all about. No, my summarization is roughly that Commander Marshall... Lawson is Lawson is saddened by the execution of his team, and then he hunts down a group of weirdos who think a DNA-altering drug called the CTX that turns you into a killing machine has some street value. Yeah, and once again we have also the, the corrupt government. Uh, this time it's through some kind of a really... He didn't, I, I don't even know what organization. Uh, essentially, there's a, in Attack Force, there is there is an organization called Majestic, <laughs> which operates like it's some branch of of government. Like for example, our our main hero Steven Seagal, who is well a, at least by his title. Is a, is a member of military. He works for Majestic. So Majestic would kind of have to be some branch of the government. It's a, it's, it's a super secret one and one that even the film doesn't understand what, what it does and what is its function. But 
There it is. And Majestic, for some reason, wants to push the the films kind of a made-up super soldier drug into, into the street market. Yeah, this is kind of one of those uh, mid-2000s Hellraiser films, which has been filmed for cheap in Romania, while it pretends to be happening in France, I suppose, because of these heavy French accent guys. Yeah, uh, this is kind of also the, the film where everybody, absolutely everybody, is trying to figure out what to do with, with Steven Seagal. And and well, essentially, what what to do with Sigar's now starting direct video career? Like, like the cinematographer is is trying to to figure out how to hide the fact that Sigal has gotten fat, and you you see attempts at at camera tricks that later become more prominent in Sigal's direct video films. They haven't yet mastered it out here, but but you see attempt. You see attempt from the ADR department what to do with Seagal when he refuses to, to do his own post-credit ADR. Haven't quite figured it out yet, but there's an honest attempt. You see an attempt from Steven Seagal's body doubles. How are we exactly going to, to showcase ourselves in front of the camera to hide the fact that it's not Seagal. Haven't quite mastered that one yet. There is way too far many side profiles, which are really obvious. But it's an attempt. Seagal himself tries to, to figure out exactly how few shits he anymore gives. Hasn't quite mastered that yet. He actually appears surprisingly a lot in this film. But at least his appearances are the, the late state stage extremely lazy Steven Seagal I'm just gonna sit down in this one room and do my lines type of type of deal yeah absolutely and the fact that you barely even see any fighting when even when they are fighting it's cut in such a way that you can't make heads or tails of the action yeah and 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 a few few unfortunate shots of, of fighting that that actually showcase you something that they haven't edited uh they haven't completely ruined in editing where you where you see that Seagal actually really like like honest to god Seagal himself still throws a punch. Mm. You can actually see that that's that's really a lazy punch. Yeah. Like like there, there's no there, there's no more even the Seagal plot block throw thing going on it's just like raises arm hits bad guy type of deal i i haven't seen like like this is this is absolutely this is some of the laziest fist fighting that i've seen in action movies yeah grabs the attack and then tries to do a throw or something yeah yeah so like you said uh, it seems that the the team has been got like pants down in the editing booth that oh Steven Seagal is not going to do any ADR for this movie so we just have to get some guy and just dub the parts that we weren't able to capture at the location yeah <laughs> get, get, get me someone to do Seagal's lines and he doesn't but, sound but anything like Seagal I, I don't sound anything like Seagal <laughs> it's not a problem just say the fucking dialogue yeah and it, what what makes it even even more worse in in Attack Force is that, 
Well, apparently Sikal also hadn't managed to figure out exactly how much he's gonna mumble yet. So it's a his dialogue is a weird mixture. There, there are parts, and this is something that changes in in mid sentence, in mid dialogue, in one fucking scene with, with Steven Seagal. You have parts of Seagal saying his own lines. Th those are the ones that they have through some miracle apparently managed to capture on set using the boom mic. Mm. Those are left in the film like as they are. You notice that that's, that's Seagal's voice. And then in, in mid mid sentence, Mm. It comes, cuts to the other guy. Yeah, it's so and, distracting. And you can't follow it, it is. It is like cigar, cigar, not cigar, not cigar, not. Now it's cigar once again. And uh, there, there is something about the cinematography that, again, we have have a lot of close-ups of everything, but you hardly see the locations very well. Just you get a little bit claustrophobic with the camera in this film. I don't know if you can blame the cinematographer, but it's so direct to TV bullshit looking. It's it's kind of the, once again, it's the case. And this is something that we also noticed in, in the director Shideo Hellraiser sequels. Mm. But there is, is this kind of idea that by post-edit fast and zooms, and extreme close-ups and and having having this weird trailing effect as you move the camera put there on on post edit it it somehow is supposed to bring energy it just makes it look even more cheap it, it does it does but for for some reason a lot of these extremely cheaply direct to video films i i, I that they have a tendency to do this. I can I can partly at least try to comprehend the logic behind this in action movies, where it, it is that like the movie is supposed to move by fast. It's it is called an action movie. There is supposed to be action. And if you if your script doesn't have enough action, doesn't have enough fighting, I, I can kinda understand the, this it's a wrong decision, but the decision at to try in the editing booth to to put some like fake action spirit to add excitement that is not there yeah yeah you you said it very well to put excitement that is not there in, into the film there's a sequel advertisement time in this film too one line that some character says about there's two things to know about him he's a bad motherfucker and he's a bad motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, this time though, uh, though it's been it, it's been left with just that one notion. And this odd notion of calling people that are younger than Seagal as children or or some other term like young man. And this is something that happens in Beyond the Law as well. I don't know. I think Steven Seagal likes to call other people children it might might once again be some kind of a compensating effect going on Sigal uh, knows that he's not getting any younger he he barely through through i don't know what hair pieces he uses but he managed to become less balding than he was in in above the law but 
you know, he, he can't turn back the clock. He's, he's, he's not getting any younger physically. So I guess this, this not the tendency that we now see that Sigal addresses any, everybody younger than him as, as children is some kind of a like compensating effect. He, yeah. he does that to, to bring the other actress or, or actors or the characters down by referring them to them as children, making him the adult. CTX bottles are at the hotel where the military bodies are spending time with this dangerous woman. But the CTX bottles are not the reason that the so-called children died. But it's it's a fucking blade. It's about these blades and then the, there is this this drug that they need to get rid of. And then there are these alien eyes because of the... It, Manages to modify her DNA. Mutation. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess the the eyes are where the IMDb's notion that these are aliens comes from. Yeah, never made in the film this notion. No, but then again, the eyes are never explained. Like the the film makes a specific point to not to showcase you that the CTX users have weird set of eyes. They have like, and, and it's it's that men in black thing where, where the, the rooftop, rooftop alien who, mm. da, who jumps from the rooftop at the very beginning of the film when Will Smith's character try, tries to arrest him. He has like the second set of eyelids. There, there's like two blinks. That happened. And Attack Force uses the exact same trick. The CTX users have two sets of eyelids. And why that is, is never explained. CTX itself, as a drug, is not really explained. There is some notion that it's, it's supposed to be some kind of a gene-altering, master-race-making chemical, which could partly explain why Majestic and through Majestic the government would be interested in it, like creating super soldiers or something like that. But what exactly are the effects of the drug are never made clear. In fact, when they talk about the drug, they what they mostly just mention is the fact that it somehow puts the it puts its users into a berserker mode. That's supposed to be the excuse for for the the killing of of the three guys from Sigal's team in in the hotel room. The the lady from the nightclub just couldn't help herself because she's a CTX user. So when when she gets more adrenaline or when she when her adrenaline spikes, she becomes a mindless killing machine. Yeah, because usually when you go to a bar and somebody's offering you drugs, well, I know personal experience though, but the the thing how it's supposed to go is that the the sales pitch goes something like this: that oh, you will will feel so connected with the universe, and you'll love everybody, and will see life differently for the rest of your days, and it will change you for the better, but here the, the sales pitch, I guess, is that, oh, well, when you're going to take CTX, you're going to turn into a mindless killing machine who will take pleasure of murdering people. Oh, yeah, I'm going to have that kind of stuff. Yeah, 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 but then again, in, in movies defense, it's not just any bar. It's the bar that is being run by the ex-biochemist who now is a nightclub runner 
because I don't know reasons. And uh, of course, this all means that the street value of CTX is you don't want to know levels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it's, it's not too valuable stuff or chemical that you couldn't just pump it into, I, I guess, France's water supply, <laughs> just so that you can make everybody a psychotic junkie. Right. This is not a very ori original plot. Just, 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 just the fact it's, it's hard to kind of uh, grasp who would want to get more of that, except kind of against their will. Uh, give me more of that shit so I can kill some more buggers. Oh well. It's 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 by no means it's not original plot. But it's it's somehow it's a plot that somehow manages to still make itself absolutely incoherent. Oh and I, boy. I can't can't figure out how you can make how can we, how you can achieve that feat with a storyline that is so unoriginal and when you really look at it, so bare bones. Yes, there, there are so many points where you are kind of clueless of people's motivations or what was this, you know I care for you, I know, me too. And then Steven Seagal's character and this attractive looking lady agent hug. Just a few minutes later, of course, she dies. That's supposed to be drama. But uh, there was no previous indication of anything that they would have been interested in each other. Then there is this uh, one town where these bad guys are supposed to go. So we go to this town and, uh, and you know, firefight ensues. I don't know if they were if they were mobilizing Romanian army for this scene or what, but they have some military gear here going on. And then they are like, yeah, let's go to the church. And that's where the action happens in the church. Then they go to some cellars, is it of the church? And that's where like the big part of the end battle happens. First it's like, now it's just for just 10 minutes of checking people's eyes, whether they have taken the CTX and if yes, then shoot them immediately. And then entering and exiting churches. And then one team, A team goes to the left and B team goes to the right. Very exciting, right? And then it's just 15 minutes of walking in team cellars. Yeah. Which finally concludes with everybody dead except Cigar and, and some random team member who is yeah. left wounded. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there were so many boring fights and tons of boring cuts and boring action. Um, at least there's Cigar and this, this, this cute Asian survives at least. This is an important note to end upon. Yeah, like the, the film literally ends with Seagal, well, not even Gary carrying, but but holding the the Asian guy's hand as as the film tries to to argue that Seagal is carrying him out out of the church, and they run in slow mo, and they get off this off off screen and end credits. Yeah, and during during that slow mo. Run! I I goddamn love this scene because you do, during during it thanks to the fact that they for some reason they they filmed it in in slow motion, you can actually see the paint green in Cigar's face as he has to run. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, then again, it's it's 
still, still, like, this is 2006, and we get to 2020 with our, with our last film, 2019. Yeah. yeah, 2019. Uh, so this is still a film where Seagal runs. Like, if, if nothing else, at least he still runs. And he still can actually run relatively well. I mean, the, the other take, like post-2000s take, where I've seen Seagal run this fast, would be 2018 when Seagal ran out on interview when he was being asked. Uh, questioned about all that sexual harassment. Yeah, so we jump 13 years later and we will see if anything has changed in his career. Uh, Beyond the Law is directed by James Cullen Brasek, who directed uh, maybe most notoriously hate crime. This is a film that was banned in the UK by the BBFC, uh, which is a story of a Jewish family which is being terrorized at their home by neo-Nazis. Yeah. And Brasak is uh, from coming from a family of artists. Cinematography is by David Newbert and Alex Brendea. Brendea directed a documentary called Profu slash Teach, uh, which is about an unconventional teacher who holds private lectures. Released in 2017, screenwriters are Chad Law and Johnny Walters. Chad Law is uh, mainly a writer of low-grade action films, such as this one. <laughs> Music by Charlie Wilkins. So... Another Steven Seagal and rap artist collaboration. Yeah. DMX is in this as he was in Exit Wounds. Yep. And he just recently died of a heart attack just a couple of months before we record this. Caused possibly by a drug overdose, but there's a close family member has that has stated that DMX took the COVID vaccine and after that he got the heart attack, so... Of course, oh the, boy, that, yeah. that that can't mean anything good knowing that he was acquainted with cigar. <laughs> I I I smell a second novel coming. <laughs> but that went uh, completely into the vaccine blame game. Anyway, but yeah, this is one of the the last movie appearances by DMX. So yeah, this is I. Yes, Sigal somehow managed to become even more fatter for yeah. for Beyond the Law. And for some odd reason, it appears that even Sigal's stunt voice actors have now decided to try to emulate the, the Sigal mumble speak. Seriously, there there were other dudes ADRing in this one? I didn't notice though. Well, I'm I'm fairly certain that there actually are. Probably. I can't confirm, but that's kind of all my like my gut impression. There's actually a notion of there being Steven Seagal stunt doubles in was it Attack Force or Beyond the Law? But yeah, so well, well, basically all all Steven Seagal's like like the late face. Yeah. St Steven Seagal films that they, they are ridden with stunt doubles. Beyond the Law actually. Perhaps being the rare exception, I didn't notice Seagal stunt doubles. Then again, this is also the film where Seagal mm -hmm. walks exactly twice in the <laughs> entire film. Was it? Yeah, yeah. He mainly sits and uh, is trying to be kind of condescending to his son character. Yeah, this also being being one of the movies where Seagal once again, plays the bad guy. Something that is really 
rare to to see from Seagal. Seagal almost like systematically refuses to to be the bad guy in the film. Of course, in in this case also the being the bad guy comes with a with a certain grain of salt as Seagal is the mob boss who well seems to to be against crime. <laughs> Most definitely seems to be against murder and spends the entire film to talk talk to his son like you you have to go legit and you shouldn't do crime and you shouldn't do murder and the the fact that his son is a criminal seems to be like like a, a real touchy point for a cigar yeah kind of a contradiction there inside the family how how to pull these two sides at the same time but yeah that's what he wants his son to do and at the at the end, kind of does a one eighty, uh, says that well, I think talking to his this police or ex police whose son got murdered, which is the big plot point of the film, says well, I think it was your fault that he died, after all, and not my son's fault who actually killed him. And also, in this film, we have absolutely absurd moments of dialogue, which I I can't understand. Which was this really? meant to be what you get what you what you get for at face value or what is this like seagull going uh, i need to clean my house so how about we do stuff tomorrow okay <laughs> yeah yeah in, in the middle of a drug deal it's supposed to be a big deal for his gangster boss self oh my god i had to rewind and check seriously yeah apparently no much um respect for victims victims because the the boy's grave in this film is like a dog's grave but i guess that comes with the whole dealing with drug cartels or mafias or cartels so you can't be laid to rest at the official graveyards so you get a dog's grave yeah dmx also plays the bad guy here who is like the town cop who is playing along with the mafia yeah this is, this one falls back well, actually, it's kind of a surprising take. Uh, we are once again we are dealing with a corrupt branch of of the government. This time, it's the police force. But what what is surprising is that up until this point, that the kind of the culprits have been CIA and well, whatever Majestic was supposed to be. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, nobody knows. The film doesn't even know know itself. itself. Uh, of course, when it comes to Cigar's filmography, this is not the the first time that the the crooked cops are kind of brought into the mix. The, the in, for example, the entire plot of Exit Wounds revolved around police corruption mm. and 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 rotten cops. But from our lineup, this is actually that that this is the first case that the police force is actually being shown to be the bad guys. Yeah, they, they lose the supplier who, I suppose, is supposed to be the, the boy that they killed in the beginning and who has nothing to do with the disappearance of the money because it's been taken by the stripper lady who is supposed to be in love with the boy that got killed. Anyway, they get the new supplier, Karina, this very sure of herself looking lady with this gazy eyes and 
and all that Seagal's mafia character can muster to say is something about, okay, you're the new supplier, so uh, I don't know, how's the volume? It's good, okay, so everything's good. Let's get on with our plans. Pretty awkward dialogue. A pretty awkward dialogue, also pretty awkward Seagal. Like, the man who looks, he looks downright sickly. Mm. In in some scenes of, of these films, like yeah. I I don't know if, if this is just a bad makeup department or if he really has health problems at this stage, but boy oh boy, does it sure it, it sure does look like that. But there's also something weird going on with with Seagal's ego, as as you notice in in the scene that is that takes place on the firing range. Where for some reason Sikar's character can't even, you know, be pretending to be firing any kind of a long at any kind of a long distance target. Mm. The target in the shooting range being exactly in Sigal's face. Yeah, if not sickly, he seems kind of really bored of making these films and as you made the notions that the he tried to move on from his action adventures and now he's kind of changing it into 2010s as we talked about now he's not in the lead actually there's another guy in the lead this ex-policeman who is out for a revenge for the people who murdered his son even though he apparently wasn't too close to the son anyway but yeah goes on this little kill trip and yeah yeah yeah, seagull seems really that he's just there, there to collect a paycheck and he's quite sick of this whole thing. And has gotten some feedback about the fact that he is not playing the lead parts really anymore. But but then in the marketing department, of course, he's billed as the, you know, the, supposed to be the lead character. But you're up for disappointment on that department. Yeah. Then again, that is also the case of today's Bruce Willis. There's something that goes with these old action stars these days, where I would say only the golden ones, like Stallones and Schwarzeneggers, still see the see the effort that they actually still play the leads in in their new action movies. And then then you have have this second set of characters like Seagal, like Bruce Willis, who yeah yeah you know sell their name. So that the film can get a top billing with them, like Bruce Willis's face will be on on the front cover, and the, and his name will be there. Bruce Willis in X. <laughs> Steven Seagal's face is is on the forefront, and at the uh, at the up, upper end of, of the of the case, you have Steven Seagal in beyond the law and then when you see the film itself you have like five minutes and he's just some kind of a really small minor part where you can easily tell that he hasn't even seen the see the trouble to show up on the shooting location except for you know the close-ups not quite as hideous film at all like as attack attack force but still Nowhere near any kind of a masterpiece. No, no. This, this most definitely, this is better than Attack Force, but this is still extremely 
lackluster outing. And it is somewhat surprising to see that Sigal is so lazy, so not giving a fuck here. Because, once again, th this is kind of the moment where Sigal could have attempted to, to play a dramatic part. His character, uh, a criminal mob boss father, who wants to his son go straight and is, is disappointed with his kind of a douchey, B-class criminal son, tries to correct him, but can't. Tries to... has to witness the, the mess that the son has cooked up, all by his lonesome, and can't really do anything with it, and is in the end finds out that he's even being betrayed by his closest friend who does the drug deals behind his back. Like, like all of that is like like dramatic, failed dad, failed mob boss, character fodder. And I would have thought that Sigal would have attempted to, to you know, grasp that. Like now finally is your chance to play something dramatic, something quote-unquote deep. Mm. And Sigal just doesn't care. Yeah, what a missed opportunity also to get at least one film where they would shoot Steven Seagal's character. No, that can't happen because the gun is pointed at the father who dies and, well, Seagal's character goes to jail at least. Yeah, but then, then again, then again, Seagal is, Seagal is infamous mm. for the fact that his characters can't die. Like, the, the biggest... Because in, in doing background, I, I went through and read some some interviews with the directors who have done, you know, these direct-to-DVD collaborations with Seagal. Mm, nice. And perhaps the most telling one came from the director of, once again, really subpar Seagal action film, Code of Honor. It's, it's this mystery action film. Yeah. Uh, somebody, some vigilante is, is killing gangsters, like the Punisher style, in somewhere US. And there's a cop chasing that guy. And it, it for the longest time, it, it tries to, to hide, kind of a paint you the picture that the cop is having like two, two separate personalities. That he, he is the cop and he's the punisher, vigilante. Mm -hmm. And in the very end, it turns out that no, the vigilante is Seagal, like really, really, really. And he and the cop know each other. And the film ends with, you know, them having a knife fight. The cop helicopter shows up. The Seagal jumps through. They are fighting on the rooftop. So Seagal jumps through, through some kind of a, you know, glass ceiling lands in inside of the the warehouse and the, the the helicopter the cop helicopter is pointing a light at Seagal. Seagal stands there in the in the spotlight. Previously he has rigged the, the warehouse with C4 so now he pulls out the detonator, looks at the helicopter and you know pushes the trigger and the whole warehouse explodes. There's like no question what happens. Seagal explodes himself in the air. And even following this scene, they, they saw the, the charred corpse. Like they, they are carrying it out of, out of the, the warehouse. And the director, to, in that interview, the director told, told us that Seagal himself, however, 
like honest to God believes that he cracked to survive that and just faked his death. <laughs> okay. So when it comes to to whole whole Steven Seagal's characters don't die in Steven Seagal movies except Machete and that was not Steven Seagal film. And even in there, even in Machete, Seagal's character kills himself. Oh yeah. Yeah. Puts the, puts the whatever katana inside him. Yeah. But but yeah, th- this is like a real sticking point for Seagal. His characters just can't die. It, it's not allowed in, in Steven Seagal universe. And if that managed to, to somehow, you know, go past Seagal so that the final film would implement implicate that, that Seagal died in the movie, but well, then Seagal does his own, very own head cannon where he somehow justifies that, no, no, in reality, my character did not die in that film, where I exploded myself into thousand pieces. Hmm. But this film has one quote that is pretty decent. You're going to shoot me or bore me to death. I got family up there waiting on me, up there where I'm going to go. So I don't need to go to listen to a little boy trying to sound like a man when he's just a piece of shit wrapped in human skin, end quote. Maybe not the most original, but that was a pretty badass character there. Anything else? Well, nothing major. Not not really. Like, it, it's really boring. Yeah. It's not as obscure story-wise as was Attack Force, but the story is nothing special. This is kind of extremely simplistic. B-level crime thriller thing. It's it's actually it's done so cheaply that when when the kids when there is the scene at the kids' funeral and there's a priest, like there always is on these scenes. Well, apparently the costume department didn't even have the money to buy a priest's color. The, the mm. priest is is some some dude in a suit who wears a tie. And you know it's a priest because he says like like the does the priestly monologue and he's holding a Bible in his hand, so that that's that's the level that, that that's the level of budget and that's the level of commitment we are dealing with here. Sometimes I feel that it was a mistake to even bring these two horrible films to this episode, but it's I think it's only fair. For to look at the Steven Seagal's career as such as it is. Well, this is a complete look at Steven Seagal's career. Yeah. Like, uh, of course, it would have been more entertaining for us. Mm. It, it would have been meant better films had we just, you know, sticked with the early career. Just watch the highlights. Henrik, we can always do Steven Seagal episode two. <laughs> talking, talking about talking about Steven St- Steven Seagal episode two. <laughs> Fucking nobody wants to really watch Steven Seagal movies. I I once had a friend who who has the idea that we are gonna have a Steven Seagal marathon. Everybody p- brings a Steven Seagal movie. There was a group of us, and we are gonna marathon it. <laughs> it, it was hyped. Like Friday night, we're gonna have a Steven Seagal marathon. Don't forget Steven Seagal marathon. Are you ready for a Steven Seagal marathon? Cool, dude. We, we we watched the first film, and he was like, 
yeah, what we gonna watch next? <laughs> and he started to pick something other than Steven Seagal. And we were like, no, 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 you, you can't do that. I mean, come on, man. This is Steven Seagal marathon. We are we're gonna watch Steven Seagal films. So we watched the second one. And following that one, that they do just code it off and switch the movie to Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> yeah, there's something weird about Steven Seagal movies because none of them are really good, but then you're somehow drawn into this this ruthless, this this character who is just so badass that it kind of entertains you with certain scenes here and there, but not completely able to hold the entire movie on his soldiers. And then you still go back to these movies somehow. That only applies to, to the first Steven Seagal films. Yeah. Like Above the Law yeah. was okay action movie. I really didn't think that it was great. It's not a classic. I just kind of watched it and was like, uh, yeah, this is okay. But it did have a cool kill, which I did like, which is the parking lot reversing the dude on the train tracks. And at kill. least the fighting is still energetic. Yeah, yeah. And Under Siege, once again, okay action film. It, it's not any kind of a like, like a great beast. It's not a classic, nothing like that, but it's okay. It, it has some cool action scenes, but you know, the, the, the later you get on Steven Seagal's career, the more and more the films become just absolute dog shit and there's just less and less fighting. That's also something that differentiates, is a difference between Attack Force and Beyond the Law. Attack Force, even though it's really shittily done, and it mm -hmm. still is extremely boring movie, but it does have more fights and, and kind of more action than Beyond the Law. At least with Steven Seagal. Well, overall, overall. I mean, exactly how many fights do you get in Beyond the Law? Oh, with Steven Seagal, you have one fight and one scene where he just, you know, gets up from the chair, walks walks across the room and shoots three, three guys. Well, there are firefights with the ex-police out for revenge. But that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But honest to God, there really is not that many action scenes in Beyond the Law. No. Yeah, the thing is that once you get to the 2000s, 2003 forwards with Steven Seagal movies, they are such absolute garbage, the films. At, at least the vast majority of them, that you really don't need to bother with with any of them. They are they are so bad, and in the case of Attack Force, just bad and dull to the point that there's nothing even too much fun to say about the film. It's just not even funny because it's so bad. Special mention for an actor goes to. This was actually pretty tough one. Yep. Because there are so many you know, appearances and actors in, in throughout the, all of these movies. For the longest time, I was going to give this to Michael Caine, who <laughs> was absolutely slumming for the paycheck because no jobs were coming to his direction in On Deadly Ground, and oh boy, can you tell? Like, this is 
one of the least giving shits Michael Caine performance I've seen, but it's still best performance of that film. Because at least Michael Caine chose the scene and is extremely hammy in his I'm the bad guy moments. But in the end, in the end, I, I just can't give it to Michael Caine alone. So my pick is absolutely everyone, everyone, especially the ladies who have had to work with Steven Seagal. You guys, you all, you all really earn it. Oh, nice pick. Yeah, f maybe it's the fact that I saw now Beyond the Law as the last movie from Steven Seagal now. And, but I'm gonna go with actually maybe the one of the maybe the only really great performance of the film is coming from the actor of Stranger Things, where he played Tommy H. Chester Rushing, who is the kid who gets killed. Chance, I believe that the terror in that scene. It was pretty good, right? Well, it it, it was, at, at least in Beyond the Law's terms. Mm. I, I wasn't blown away by it by any means. But at, at least, you know, he, he did portray an emotion. He did. Unlike Steven Seagal. Unlike Steven Seagal in any of his movies, even in his best days. What resonated with you most? Most memorable experience and all that? Well, it, it goes to his, his early films. Steven Seagal always has had this kind of sadistic streak when it comes to, comes to the violence in his movies. Like, there, there is a sadistic element to the violence that he shows in, in the movies. But at least some of that sadism did work for me in, in his earlier films. So what resonated with me the most would be some of the more gruesome death kills in, in his early films. Like, for example, the, the guy who gets, gets reversed into the train tracks in, in Beyond the Law, getting, getting the main CIA bad guy at the very end of, you know, Beyond the Law, uh, the, the helicopter explosion in Under Siege. There are those individual action beats that I really thought that, oh, yeah, that was cool. Mm, yeah, that brutal side. That uh, unhingedness, that... Everything is possible when you're bad. Yeah. It's Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, to, to, to some, that is, honest to God, problem. Like, I, I have come face to face with the with the argument that Seagal's films are so sadistic that it actually takes viewers out of the experience. And that's nah. something that most definitely can happen to some. It, it didn't happen to me, but that, once again, that's that's... Perhaps it's more about me as a person than than the films themselves. So if if you don't like a certain level of sadism in your action movies and especially in the depiction of violence, then maybe think twice before you know popping in a Steven Seagal. The biggest parts that I liked were the events where Steven Seagal still could pull off a smile, seemed that he was enjoying himself thinking of himself as a somewhat charismatic lead who is able to kick ass and pull off some pretty decent one-liners every now and then. That's the Steven Seagal, that's the ass-kicking Steven Seagal that 
I do miss and I understand that he is almost pulling 70 now, but still, man, you can still be in, in shape and you could even look the same as you did in 89 if you would put a little bit effort, but he doesn't. In what adjective, how would you describe Siegel's films? Uh, to, to put all of them into one adjective, I have to go and... Uh, and this is something where I'm not exactly 100% unified, but it is the, the sentiment that kind of highlights my episode of my experience of watching five Steven Seagal movies <laughs> as, a, as a whole it's boring even <laughs> even 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 in his his best movies I just didn't fully get into into the action that there are some great action set pieces some great moments that I thought that yeah that was hella cool but even with that I wasn't blown away by Above the Law. I wasn't blown away by Under Siege, even though I think that it may be the best of the Die Hard but in X movies. But mostly, mostly, I was I was just bored. Especially when I when I look at my experience and my time with all these five movies together. Yeah, and the pain that you feel when you go to apple tv store and you realize that you have to rent attack force for 3.99 yeah it, it's it's money that i will never actually get back because this podcast makes no profit mm. um in one adjective how would i describe Siegel's films confusing for sure it's a bit of a confusing career where you have themes that you could take somewhere but then you just completely Make no use of them, like the Native American theme is completely abysmal in, on deadly ground. Environmental themes, <laughs> kind of a leftist, leftist themes combined with ass kickery is an interesting concept. But confusing, yeah, and then that the way that his career plummets. A lot of wasted opportunities here. But it just com comes down to the fact that Steven Seagal is not able to, I guess, give anything better. Obviously. Favorite quote, if any. Um uh, goes to on on boring ground. <laughs> you used to be a good man, now you are nothing but a whore. <laughs> that at, at at least, at least that was a good line in one of these films. Um I'll go with under siege in this case. Come on, that's not striking an officer. That's striking an officer. Would you consider to watch these Steven Seagal films ever again? Uh, uh, no. Well, I'm 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 not in any way looking forward to the moment, but perhaps above the law and under siege, uh, on deadly ground, most definitely not. Or or that that. As as boring as it is, it's still in the department of possible watchability. Um, Attack Force is is no, fucking no, and the same goes for the Beyond the Law. Yeah, no need to watch this on my part. I've seen other seats so many times now, and 
the Finnish TV channel and TV3 and the other commercially running engines and I suppose maybe the, even the government side TV channels they have holy crap god they have they have airway waved this film so many times that I think enough is enough it's not that good of a film anyway and I'm not particularly interested in even the the cheapo 80s Steven Seagal films I'm not even sure what I'm even interested in Steven Seagal's career but I, I must confess that I was really surprised that we went with Steven Seagal. <laughs> it's kind of the, the maybe the cringe factor, the the parts that you're not supposed to laugh at, but it's unintentionally funny on occasion. That's what I enjoy about Steven Seagal. Do you think these films have any staying power legacy? Yeah, a few of his first films will live on. Obviously, but not, none of these are gems. Just a collection of average action films with some aver above the aver average occasional moments. Yeah, I, on my end, I have to say no. I, I don't see staying power or legacy with any of these. When it comes to his early works, which arguably are his better ones, I do think that those are not great enough to hold a legacy. Like even even Under Siege, which is like, in my opinion, from the best end of of the Die Hard, but in X movies, even even as 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 it is, it's still in the end, it's just an okay action movie in the sea of okay action movies. When it comes to to legacy of of Steven Seagal's films, I would. Many people want to see these films, like like they, that they do hold a legacy. But I'm kind of I would counter argue that it's not the films; it's Steven Seagal. Like Steven Seagal has the legacy that we now kind of give to the films, and I don't believe that even Steven Seagal himself has a true legacy. It's. Like Steven Seagal's star and his fandom, even though he still has fans, that they have been diminishing, like in a rapid rate, in my opinion, throughout the film, uh, throughout the years. These days, even though Steven Seagal is repeatedly being mentioned, he's more mentioned in a sarcastic way. He's mentioned because because of how how you said it, the cringe factor. Mm. Like, we we are not talking about Steven Seagal. Even this episode was not about Steven Seagal because Steven Seagal is such of a great action star or he made such of a great action films. We were kind of doing it to, to look at his career knowing that the later end of his career is completely batshit bonkers. Like Steven Seagal, he, he is not like, like Schwarzenegger or Stallone or Eastwood, or perhaps even in Bruce Willis, even though Bruce Willis himself is sabotaging Bruce Willis as hard as him possi he possibly can these days. But, but you know, with Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Eastwood, with those guys, you can say that they are some type of icons, that, that they are kind of being cemented into, into what is an action movie. 
that those guys have a legacy. Terminator will have a legacy. Conan the Barbarian will have a legacy. Mm -hmm. Dirty Harry will have a legacy. Spaghetti Westerns have a legacy. Rambo has legacy. But I see none of that. None of it in, in Steven Seagal. I, I don't see Conan when I, when I look at Under Siege. I don't see Dirty Harry when I look at Above the Law. I don't see Stallone in, in Seagal. That's something that kind of goes very well into the 90s action stars. Like 90s action stars, very few of them, in my opinion, has managed to, to build themselves a career that would lend them a real legacy. Something like Jean-Claude Van Damme, e even though he's he's really on the on the margin, not guaranteed the least, but perhaps he has like reached out enough. He has the serious action thrillers and the, and the goofy video game Street Fighter movie, and then he has the movies where he just laughs at himself. So perhaps there's enough variety that he will manage to, to create some kind of a legacy. Steven Seagal just is a Steven Seagal. He's just a stone-faced dude who can't act, who can't laugh at himself, yeah. who, who got the career because, uh, fuck, I don't even understand why. Because like, it was uh, like a studio showcase that, hey, I can make anyone an action star, right? Yeah, and yeah, it because it, it was a showcase of one agent's power within the system. And and because of that, I, I really I really don't see a legacy in Steven Seagal, even though even though he is still today, as as we are doing the episode, he still is being recognized. Uh, but once again, that recognition comes largely from cringe factor. It comes also largely from the fact that yearly he pushes out one really shitty direct video I'm just hanging here Steven Seagal feature or two or two but I kind of feel that you and I we are kind of presenting the last generation of of action movie fans that will give Steven Seagal kind of any kind of a shadow of noticeability any kind of a shadow of a legacy. And even us are doing it kind of just, just to laugh at Seagal himself. That's to true, point out yeah. his many failings. This episode has been me pointing out his all sexual harassment cases and laughing at his shitty book and poking fun at, at his movies. And I feel that would, would you and I, would we have kids someday? Perhaps as, as a dad's, we would showcase our our kid a Steven Seagal film like this is something that I watched when I was in when I was your age, and most likely our kid would never understand what the fuck we saw in Steven Seagal, and you know our grandkids I I doubt they will ever even hear about Steven Seagal, they they will hear about Schwarzenegger they will hear about Stallone Eastwood. But to yeah. me, Seagal is is fading star. Yeah, as you said, we're kind of laughing at Steven Seagal and as a kind of a, of course, an extremely professional podcast host, it makes me sad that this is the starting point of this entire episode. I remember that back in the early 2000s, 
my brother was fascinated by the Steven Seagal films along with my friend and my friend and my brother would <laughs> look at a bunch of Steven Seagal films and at times we had a, like a blast we would just laugh so much at some of these scenes but now kind of a, maybe looking at this solo and looking at his career as a whole it's any more hard to see what was so funny about it was it just that we were younger? It was. It had more laughs as a kid, possibly. But the problem of these movies is, is that none of them are able to kind of have something so special that you would say that hey, let's go watch Fire Down Below tonight. No, there is none of that. But would you recommend these six Steven Seagal films? I wouldn't. No. No. Yeah. Uh, if if there is nothing, absolutely nothing, like if they come across you on, on Netflix and you have absolutely seen everything else that is on Netflix, in that case, Above the Law and Under Siege are pretty safe bets. They, they are not great films, but they are okay. But if, even that, you, you can find way better action movies, in my opinion, and when it comes to the rest of, of, you know, today's outings, like mentioned, uh, on Deadly Ground, I, I found it really boring. And it's, it's kind of even, even mystery to me because I, I, as a, as a leftist liptard would be someone who would resonate very strongly with the films, films theme that oil is bad as, as I, I, I see that the global oil dependency is something that will doom the planet. And I also see it as a national security hazard. So you would think that, you know, oil is bad action movies would be something down on my right down on my alley. And technically like it, it, it has accents at pieces there, there was like every now and then people try to come up with these mathematical formulas. Like in an action movie, you have to have an explosion every 10 minutes or every 15 minutes. And in, in that sense, On Deadly Ground kind of holds up. But I never connect with the action. That's my biggest mm. pro problem with, with all of these films. I don't connect with the action. I don't connect with Steven Seagal. People talk about talk that Steven Seagal has his charisma, but I've never felt it myself. Whatever charisma there was, it was gone after the late 90s. Yeah, and, and to me, it, it never was there. So I I really, I, I don't recommend the movies. Above the Law and, and on Detrika, uh, Above the Law and Under Siege, uh, pretty safe bets if, if absolutely nothing is on. But no, no, I'm, I'm not recommending even those. Yeah. It is actually the same for me that I would not recommend any of these. But if I have to choose something as the most entertaining, the, the one that is maybe the best of this, this bunch. Again, we could have selected a lot of different films. We could have selected, selected Out for a Kill, which I would argue is better than Above the Law. But nevertheless, Carrier Starter, Above the Law, is a good point to look at here. 
So I wouldn't recommend any, but Fire Down Below was the most entertaining. Uh, in what order would you put these films? Uh, in, in my opinion, perhaps uh, Under Siege, Above the Law. Uh, uh, then comes Tricky, perhaps still, despite all the negativity, uh, on Deadly Ground, Fire Down Below, then Beyond the Law, and Attack Force would be the very least. Well, Under Siege could be argued to be technically the best film here. Yeah, most definitely. But for me, yes, as a matter of opinion, the most fun Fire Down Below, so I'll put it as first, and Under Siege closely followed by there. And then third, on Deadly Ground, because I think it's uh, unintentionally hilarious at times, but still gets very boring and like, slowed down in the middle part when Seagull spends time in the uh, Native American community. Oh god, yeah, that goes on and on and on. Yeah, and then would be Above the Law, because I think it's just quite boring. Beyond the Law after that, and Attack Force is the last one. Well, a complete sentence. You really know you're watching Steven Seagal films when? You really know you're watching Steven Seagal films when you are in the middle of a movie and... Hey, wait, wait, wait what's this? Jesus. Didn't notice that. A letter of some sort. Just... Oh, look! It's a sexual harassment lawsuit. <laughs> Uh, you really know you're watching Steven Seagal films when you cramp up in the same film Michael Caine, Oil Rigs, uh, Sexual Harassment, and Native Americans. Well, that was that was six films of, of Steven Seagal and and three peers. Okay. Which which you can count in, in case Curry leaves or, or the opening appear can sounds in, into the fi finished product. Why not? <laughs> it, at least it sheds a light exactly how backwards production this is. Like. We have opening a beer cat. <laughs> we have received some feedback every now and then that it adds adds to the mood of the studio when we have some background sounds every now and then, like opening beer cans and uh, rattling papers, <laughs> breaking glass and cats meowing. Falling, uh, falling, falling beer cans. <laughs> Something from Halloween episode. <laughs> God, I'm so tired that I'm having trouble forming basic sentences at this point. But yeah, but per perhaps this is the, the time to cap off off the episode. <laughs> so what are we looking at next, Henrik? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that that's exactly the right reaction. Seeing exactly how much in trouble we are once again. This will be the biggest trouble we will ever be in this podcast. <laughs> because in the next episode, we'll do a podcasting career suicide and visit Syria. <laughs> Mohammed Malas. The, 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 the fucking, fucking, fucking latest civil war is still ongoing. Yep. We, we are talking about movies that depict actual pain and hardships. 
of of people who who even today are go, going through going through that experience. Jesus Christ. So yeah, that's gonna be in two weeks from now. But what did you think of Seagull Films? Come and come connect with us on our social media pages. And we'll hope you leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts if unless you're a Seagull aficionado. Thank you for joining us. See you in a fortnight. Oh, until then. And then Seagull responds. I'm gonna do that. Two beautiful twins like you. Mm-hmm. Gets a man thinking. <laughs> Fucking God, Seagull. Seagull going. Uh, I need to clean my house, so how about we do stuff tomorrow, okay? Mitenköhän helkkaudessa? Niin mä etin jotakin, jos olisi löytynyt Syyriasta jotain mielenkiintoisia aiheita, koska hulluhan mä oon. No ainakaan tätä ei voi enää monimutkaisemmaksi tehdä. Eihän, eihän. Okay, hey, 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 all right. In this shot, I'm gonna use my magic to run up that wall and then jump over the roof. Okay, great. Can we get those wires in here, please? Whoa, 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 hey. Who said anything about wires? I saw that Chinese movie like four times. I didn't see any wires. Yeah, that's because they were digitally removed. Oh, really? So maybe I should digitally remove your head from your body? Because people are paying good American money to see me fly. <laughs> Stupid. That's very good. <laughs> oh, what's that? Oh, you think I should? I don't know. He seems like a nice guy. What? Yeah, yeah. You know, he makes a good point. <laughs> it's it's block block throw, 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 block block finisher.